Welcome to Walking Backwards. I'm Brad Grimet. This week's guest is Dave Emmerichs. He's a Steadicam operator who has worked on some brilliant films um, like Catch Me If You Can, The Green Mile, Seven, Armageddon, uh, and many, many more. He has a new movie coming out called Bad Times at the El Royale that I haven't seen yet, but from what he says, um, I'm probably going to like it. So, um, I'm excited for you guys to hear this conversation. I think it's a good one. Uh, if you'd like to support me and my podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash walking backwards, or you can email me at walking backwards podcast at gmail.com. Enjoy. The hardest thing for me to do on the documentary I shot, uh-huh. I was the sound department too. I was doing all the recording oh, no. and I had multiple wireless microphones and the camera. And it, I learned serious respect for the sound department at that point. Yeah, uh, I can imagine you did. And it's funny you say that. I tell it to people all the time. Yeah, you, I don't know if you notice. I just turned the AC off and my fridge yeah, off and, that, and my yeah. fan off. <laughs> and I've 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 screwed it up so many times. And you really, when it comes on during a tape, it's like you're like, yeah. what in the oh the fridge ah. Oh. <laughs> so <laughs> we've been recording, by the way. I, I figured Dave, you probably had Dave Emmerich's in front of me. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. It's our first time meeting. Yeah, nice you, to meet you, and thanks for having me. Yeah, nice to meet you too. You were you were at my um, at the gate out there with uh, with papers in your hand. I wasn't sure, um, you know, I don't have any wives or anything to get di- divorce papers or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, I'm but here I to serve you. Being yeah, exactly. Served. No, I brought my cheat sheet uh, <clears throat> just to make sure I didn't forget names and things like that, or you know, the weird things I did. 20 years ago that's really smart i'm not going to ask you about too many of the weird things okay uh, everyone has to go through the weird things to get somewhere <laughs> yeah weird movies maybe i'll ask about yes exactly <laughs> um yeah that uh you are as a matter of fact you're speaking of weird are you working on avatar right now yes um and weird is appropriate right you did the first one as well correct i was the steady cam <clears throat> operator for the live action on the first one uh, okay. With the 3D camera rig, yeah. I'm doing oh. virtual camera on two and three. Okay. Um, are you the only operator? Uh, actually, they had Lukenbach in there for a while because okay. I was finishing a movie in Vancouver earlier this year. Uh-huh. And uh, on the first movie, Jim did all the virtual camera stuff himself. And on this one, they thought it might be helpful to have what basically amounts to a standby operator for when Jim doesn't want to do it. Gotcha. And they st- uh, Lukenbach started, did a couple weeks, and then he went over to second unit. I came in and took over on the main unit. Uh, but Jim tends to do most of it because he uses the virtual camera as his director's finder. And he just kind of wanders around in the virtual world of Pandora mm-hmm. looking for angles he could use. And it's not until the completely unintuitive later stage after performance capture when you're doing cameras that he's actually doing real shots that will eventually be done by Weta and turned into what ends up on screen. Yeah, it it's a weird process. It's super weird. Um I never saw the original. <laughs> You're the guy. I'm the one. <laughs> I'm the one. I was looking at the numbers. I'm like, yeah, everybody else saw it. Wait, I think I wrote them down. 2 2 and 3 quarter billion dollars or yes. something like that. Yes, exactly right. But like a 250 budget uh, it, if I think anybody box actually said it was two thirty-seven yeah. box office mojo, but if right. anybody really knows what it costs, yeah, right, right, and then that's not counting marketing, probably. I would imagine <clears throat> not. Yeah, I 
What do you think about that? I mean, you do all these giant movies. What do you think about people or studios spending a hundred, two hundred, three million dollars on one movie? I don't know what the real budget is for the current two. We're doing two and three at the same time. Right. But, you know, they're counting on something similar to what happened in the first one, and they're going to get a huge return on their investment. And I would never bet against Jim. When we were doing the first one, people would say, is it going to be bigger than Titanic? Mm-hmm. And you'd kind of go, oh, I, I, don't know, I don't know. Could anything be bigger than How Titanic? How could you ever predict it? Yeah. yeah. And then it came out and blew Titanic out of the water. No pun intended. But uh, <laughs> it really sank it. Yeah, exactly. So I would not count Jim out, and this thing could make a huge fortune, bring 3D back to the forefront for a while, and uh, you know, big presentation and right, you know, epic theater going experience, all that kind of stuff. Right. Is he actually shooting 3D, or is it they're going to use? No, they'll be doing real 3D for the live action portions using the new Sony Venice camera. Okay. Yeah. Um. Oh, yeah, because it's 6K or whatever. Actually, they're only, I think they're using it in 4K mode. Oh, they are? Okay. Well, what was that? (laughs) (laughs) That sounded like some kind of Windowsy noise. My computer's making noise. It's okay. We're going to live through that. Um, (laughs) um, So, okay, so you're doing two and three, but while looking around, they have have a release date for four and five as well. (laughs) They do. Uh, whether those are greenlit or not, I think depends on how well two performs. Gotcha. Yeah. Right. If two does well, then they'll start making four or five kind of thing. Right. I suspect if I say anything more than that, some little drone will pop up behind me and shoot we don't, me we, in the back. We of don't the head. want any any drones. How uh, how long have they been shooting? If that's not a secret, because and I, the reason I ask is because I did a movie in twenty fourteen. And one of the drivers on our movie is like, oh, yeah, I was before this movie, I was working in the production office for Avatar. <laughs> oh, it's it's been going on for years and it'll keep going on for years um, because they've had to develop new technologies and build an amazing amount of stuff. And so there are people there that have been on it for many years already. Um, the principal performance capture, I think, just finished almost day 190 or something like that. But again, that's for two movies. Right. Day 190. <laughs> yeah. And there's still cameras for several months to do and live action in New Zealand. And Wow. So you're currently booked for months on this. I do not see the light at the end of the tunnel. I think that I finally got to the tunnel for what I was originally hired to do, which is basically to uh, make the shots that Jim does look like they were done with equipment you'd have to drag into the jungle if you were a real film crew, a Technocrane, a Steadicam, a Dolly, whatever it might be. Uh, and that's going to be a large part of what I do on it. Right. Well, but, but right now you said you're kind of a standby operator. So that's, you're, yeah, that so just you're, finished. You're ske- oh, that just finished. Yeah. Okay. But you're scheduled to, to do live action, so you're going to New Zealand? Or? No, I'm not. I'm not you're doing not. that. You're not? Oh, okay. Because they're yeah. going to be gone a long time, and I want to stay married. Good thinking. Yes. Good thinking. <laughs> as, as I've gotten further in my career, what has become more important is having a good life at home. And as we know, the film industry has left Los Angeles behind for a large portion of it. Yeah. And so... Especially for movies, yes. Yeah, exactly. So spend a lot of time in Atlanta or Vancouver or Toronto or New York. And so to get a job that runs this long in, uh, in Los Angeles is like a gold mine. Oh, you're the only one. Yeah, I mean... By a mile. There are several other operators on it, interestingly enough. They operate reference cameras because they shoot uh, with regular 
um, you know, I think 4K video and HD video, they shoot reference footage of the uh, performing, you know, the actors doing their stuff with their little, you know, the suits with the dots all over them. They, right. sh- they shoot reference of that for the animators. So there's sometimes 20 operators there operating those things. Really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's crazy. It is crazy. Uh, it's just so weird. It, it just seems so... I mean, from a business standpoint, I get it, but it just seems so mechanical and non... It's not. It's all designed to not be that. Really? It's, in fact, the opposite of why Jim does it. Jim does it because he wants a performance that is as real as possible for these animated characters, and he wants whatever the actor that he's cast to play the character, he wants that performance to come through in the animation. Mm -hmm. So... He builds an environment in which those actors, even though they're surrounded by a gray soundstage and they're wearing these funny suits with cameras strapped to their face to collect their, you know, and they have the dots all over their face to record the uh, uh, animation of their face. He wants to make it feel real to them. So he does anything he can to heighten the tension, whether it's, you know, using real gunfire or throwing them in real precarious situations where they're strapped and harnessed into crazy things. I mean, I can't talk about a lot of what it is, but... I give him a lot of credit for going above and beyond to put the performers in a position where they're it they can believe they're on Pandora to a larger degree than probably anyone out there thinks they can. And it's all going to come out in those performances eventually and make and that's why the first one worked so well, I think. Wow, okay. That's cool. That's a super I did not expect that answer. That's that's good to hear. Um so a lot of the technology is him going out of his way to help the actors Absolutely. and in turn help the film. Absolutely. He oh. wants it as real as possible on that stage. Cool. In a in a, <clears throat> an environment where you can't really go to Pandora. And do, I mean, if anyone would do it, he would go to another planet and shoot the movie there. <laughs> if Pandora existed, he'd yes, be there, right? <laughs> exactly. And there are days where I look around at everything they're doing, and I think it would probably have been easier to gene- you know, genetically engineer the Navi, go to Pandora, and just shoot the damn movie <laughs> in space. Right. <laughs> but uh, it's it's actually a pretty incredible operation. I guess once it's all going, it, it doesn't, it's not as complicated. Because the way you just explained it is very, seemingly very complicated. But it is very complicated. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. <laughs> all right. Fair enough. <laughs> I mean, if you, you know, we are in a business. So I just, that type of movie is not my... I guess I shouldn't say that. I haven't seen it. No, fair enough. It I didn't, mean, it didn't excite me when it came out. I'll tell you what. I went and saw. Uh, we had saw the cast and crew screening at Man's Chinese Theater, and I was blown away. I had no idea. I mean, I'd read the script. I knew what I was supposed to see on screen, right? And I had no idea that's what it was going to be. So I was blown away by the experience. I like the scripts for the new one. Um, like I said, I would never bet against Jim. And it'll be an experience for people to go see. And I I rewatched the first one before doing uh, two and three, mm-hmm. and I still enjoy it. You know, it's escapist. It's fun. I like Jim's movies, and I enjoyed it. And uh, so I was surprised how well it held up. Some of the visuals, you kind of go, okay, we've gotten to t- the point where technology can take us beyond that. Okay, and that's what's going to happen in the next one. And I expect the stuff that comes out of Weta is going to be just phenomenal looking. Right. Is it the same, for the most part, is the exact same process as the first one now? Or? Pretty much. Okay. Yeah. Just updated, essentially. Yeah. Stuff is refined. <clears throat> processors become more powerful. Throw more information at it. Make it bigger. You know. 
Right. Faster, kind of better, stronger, more expensive. Yeah. Right. Pretty much. <laughs> oh, the <laughs> numbers cool. they throw around in terms of processing power and the amount of time and money per frame, all that kind of stuff. It's just all insane. Right. Oh, that's cool. It sounds awesome. As you say, I mean, it sounded like you were about to say, okay, yeah, not my kind of movie. And I understand that. The one I finished just before that, the other end of the spectrum, it was uh, Bad Times at the El Royale, which comes out in two weeks, I think. Yeah. And it was anamorphic film, uh, you know, build a set on stage, right. working with the actors, performing with them. Real and locations. It, it, yeah. Right. And it's, you know, the other end of the spectrum. And it's right. a different kind of movie making. Yeah, I was going to ask you that because I saw... Um, a trailer for it was it the other day anyway it looks it looks interesting it looks like my kind of movie you're gonna like it a lot i got to go see the premiere and i loved it um i think the reviews are just coming out and you know they're a little split but yeah a lot of people really uh have liked it and it's tested really well and uh i'm proud of what i got to do in it seamus mcgarvey's the dp and he's fantastic and it looks amazing uh I was really happy with uh, the fact that a lot of the shots we'd done, the director, Drew Goddard, put a lot of thought into shots. Uh, the whole set was designed around one particular four-minute shot that was done. Really? Yeah. Wow. And Or yeah, I'd say whole set, a good portion of the set was designed around this shot, which was previs uh, way early in the process of making the movie. So he'd had this shot in mind from the beginning. It's in the script. It's written. The following happens in one shot. And it's in the movie. Uncut. In one shot. In one shot. And it wow. came out great. It was done on a dolly with a Libra head. Uh, Ryan Monroe was the dolly grip, and he did a fantastic job. A shot like that, I mean, he's almost more important than you. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I said right there on the day. I was like, this shot would not work without Ryan. I'm sitting back there operating the wheels, having a fine time, and he's doing the hard work. Oh, and, yeah. In fact... I'd say Ryan had the hardest job. The ADs had a really hard job just in the coordinating everything that's happening during the uh, shot. And then Doug Lavender was the focus puller. He did a fantastic job. And I'd say, yeah, the job was easier for me than any of them. Yeah. Wow, that's really cool. Do you, do you, uh, let's come back to the movie in one sec, but do you use that process a lot, the Lieberhead on a dolly? More and more lately because people are more open to carrying that kind of equipment for the whole, uh, whole show. Right, And we were doing a lot of long takes in the movie where even though we knew it was going to be cut up, it was going to be move over here and sit there for three minutes. Move mm -hmm. over here, sit there for two minutes. And Seamus is the kind of director of photography, and Drew supported him fully, who wants to use the right tool for the right job. And I've right. always thought that too. I've never been, I mean, none of us like being the Steadicam slash tripod. Right. So I think there's four Steadicam shots in the whole movie. Really? Yeah. The rest of it's Technocrane, uh, Dolly, and Dolly with a Libra head on it. And I think there's two handheld shots in it. Wow. Uh, the director and DP wanted a very classic look, and I was all for it. I thought it was great. Well, and a classic look calls for cranes and dollies. Not, yeah. Not a well, it's some Steadicam, but the not Steadicam, a bunch of handheld and stuff. No, you know? exactly. Yeah. The Steadicam shots that are in it don't look like Steadicam shots. Right. So It's not like a walk and talk or something no. type thing. Right. In fact, I don't think there's a walk and talk in the movie thank goodness my least favorite shot <laughs> it's just been done to death exactly i mean you know uh, i don't know they can still be fun to watch but it takes a lot to make one interesting and i remember a lesson early on in my career where i showed up on a movie to do a long involved uh, move through a newsroom with some walk and talk and it was the i thought oh we're going to be preceding the actor through the whole set kind of thing and 
the DP of the movie was John Lindley. And the first surprise he threw at me was he came up and he said, okay, put on a 50. And this was not anamorphic, it was spherical. Mm-hmm. So that's a pretty long lens for a walk and talk to reveal the set. Right. And then the next surprise was, yeah, I don't want to just walk backwards in front of the guy. I want you to go this way around the room and behind these desks as the actor goes that way and be in profile here and then rush in on him, come around, be on the other side. And it was a good lesson in choreographing something that could be so boring so often that you see so many times right and make it look different because when you start sweeping in big arcs around somebody like that i mean i was moving the actor's not moving that fast but to get around and beat him to the next mark i'm hauling ass around the corners uh, around these desks and past columns and things like that and on a 50 the background's whipping by right and it gave it great energy it looked really cool oh cool and then of course it gets chopped up in the movie and you get little pieces of it here and there and you go uh, that was almost awesome. <laughs> I tried. Yeah, exactly. It looked it looked good on film. When we, <laughs> yeah. I mean, but that kind of shot reminds me of like an All the President's Men kind of. But those are all done on dollies. But you know, from the other side of the newsroom, and they yeah. they do that. Um, I remember watching that movie, and those those shots stood out for me. So I would like that kind of shot too. I think I've done something like that at some point. Probably not as well as you, but. <laughs> um, but uh, back to uh, uh, bad times at the El-, El Royale. Yeah, it's a hotel. Yeah, I like that title, and I like the cast. Uh, oh, geez, John Hamm and yep. John Hamm, Jeff Bridges. Yes, and uh, several other people. Cynthia Erivo, who's a Broadway star. It was her first feature, I believe, and she's dynamite. Lewis Pullman. Um, he's just uh, amazing. Really amazing. Cool. Yeah. So you so you were super you were happy with the uh, outcome. It was one of the most enjoyable experiences I've ever had on a film set. Wow. You know, I I look at my IMDb page and it's probably the same for everybody. You look at it and you go, ninety percent of this stuff is garbage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, make, you make a living, but you kinda go, yeah. Wow, there's not much here that I'm really proud of. But this is one I, I feel pretty happy to have been involved with. Had a great time and you know, looking forward to going to work every day. And the creative collaboration that happens on the set—that's always nice. It was it? fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Um, God, that's great. And you've—have you worked with the director before? Or was this the first time? No, it was the first time, and it was his, only his second feature as a director. Gotcha. But you've worked with Seamus. I've worked with Seamus a couple times. Yeah, I did the the accountant and um, the uh, nocturnal animals with him. Okay. Um, I didn't see Nocturnal. I remember thinking, oh, that looks interesting, and I just never got to it. But The Accountant, was, I thought, was really good. It was fun. Yeah. yeah. Um, again, I like that kind of movie. Um, it's it's grittier than you expect it to be. Right. Yeah. Well, the title doesn't just grab you, you know, and on purpose. You know, accountant, really? We're making a movie about an accountant? <laughs> right. It's obviously not going to be about your everyday average boring accountant. Right. <laughs> No, it wasn't. I noticed that. It was <laughs> An accountant with guns, lots of big guns. I was hoping yeah. the next one will be uh, CPA, like yeah, <laughs> or exactly. the accountant to <laughs> the lawyer, right? <laughs> um, yeah, that's cool. Um, so, so um, how did you how did you connect with Seamus to begin with? Because um, he's been around quite a while. The first thing I did with him was a Gucci sunglasses commercial. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Out in Malibu, Harry Zimmerman was the focus puller who'd worked with uh, with Seamus a bunch. And they were looking for a steady cam operator. And Harry said, hey, call Dave. And uh, I think it was the fact that I made it through the night with a smile on my face 
and I didn't crack that made Seamus think, oh, I should hire him for a movie because it was one of the more insane things I've ever had to do. Walking down a dark hillside in Malibu, it was so windy out that they had to turn off all the, uh, you know, the big uh, floating balloon lights that were going to light the night scene. They turned those off, had one backlight, and we're going down through really rough terrain that was, there were hedges blocking any light, and I literally could not see the ground. Oh, my. And uh, it was a dolly grip saved my uh saved my ass because he said why don't you put a headlight on your steady cam and i'd never done this before i took a headlight taped it to the steady cam pointing down at the ground in front of my feet so i could see where i was going smart and it was great and it was really windy blowing me all over the place and no one could there wasn't space to fit anybody in with flags or anything like that and so i just grabbed the thing and muscled through it but seamus was nice everybody was great we were having a good time so i kind of just smiled and laughed my way through the whole thing and a couple months later, Seamus called me and said, hey, you want to come down to Atlanta and do a movie? That's cool. Um, <clears throat> yeah, you know, that situation for me, like, um, when the shot is really tough, the conditions are tough, I'm fine with that as long as everybody's cool. I think if you've heard my, if you've heard my podcast at all, like, my biggest pet peeve is assholes, you know? There's no reason we're not there, – there's no – most of the time – Life and death is not at stake. At stake, um, we're just trying to make a little bit of commercial stuff that people will buy. I've always thought time, right? if you can't have fun on a film set, where can you're doing the wrong thing? Right. I mean, come on, we're paid to play with toys in the land of make believe. How much better can it get than that? Right. So right. for you know all the screaming and yelling that goes on on sets sometimes, like lighten up, Francis. Yeah, yeah. I don't get. I don't understand the. I don't understand why some people think they need to do that. Um, but anyway, oh, well, let's not talk about them. Let's talk about, uh, I was looking, well, we were talking just a second ago about your documentary you're shooting. Oh, yeah, my wife directed Are the documentary. Are you shocked? Sorry. Yeah, it's already done. Uh, we've had a, a screening at CAA, actually. Um, cool. For all those people out there listening, that's because we talked about CAA earlier <laughs> when you weren't listening. <laughs> yeah, thank uh, you for Yeah, my wife's clarifying. represented by CAA. Uh, my wife is an actress who's become a writer, and she's always been an avid runner. And when I say avid, I mean she runs like a 10K every day. Wow. Uh, and hasn't missed a day in, I don't know, nine years. Oh, wow. Yeah. So she, she found her thing. She got it into her head that she wanted to make a movie about aging runners. Like, okay, how long can I run before everything's going to fall apart? Right. And we found runners in their 60s, 70s, 80s. Even one guy we interviewed, who was 90-something, who was still running the Boston Marathon. Wow. And so she said, I want to make a documentary. So I took most of the last year off and shot that for her, and we traveled all over the country. We filmed everything from a guy doing his first 5K to a guy doing a 100-mile race in the mountains of Colorado to a woman who's run the entire circumference of the country and across every state in the middle. She does more than a marathon a day for 90 days straight. And these people are inspiring. They're all approaching 60, 70. We had Catherine Switzer, who was the first woman 51 years ago. I think so, yeah. In 1967, she was the first woman to officially complete the Boston Marathon. Wow. Uh, They tried to tackle her out of the race because they didn't want women in the race. Really? Yeah, there's famous pictures of her of the race director coming up and trying to tackle her out of the race, screaming, get the race director. Mm -hmm. Wow. And so we had her in the movie. She was running the Boston, not Boston. Uh, She was running the New York marathon at the age of 70 or 71 and did it in uh, four hours and 48 minutes with a, came across the finish line with a smile on her face, looking like she'd run around the block. Wow. So these people were really inspiring. And the whole movie is 
about you know it's meant to inspire you and show you that uh the more you do the more you can do just keep going keep going and right uh, yeah that's a good message and it's called the human race right? yeah 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 it'll be released in january online streaming cable uh pay-per-view that cool kind of stuff. yeah i mean to make a documentary is hard um, it put me so far out of my comfort zone. It was really funny. I'm sitting here with, you know. Is that the first one you've ever done? Yeah, I'd never done a doc. Well, I was an assistant on a documentary in New York when I first was getting yeah. into the business. But I'd never worked on one where I was responsible for it. I was the DP. I was the sound You said you man. did sound. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so was I was, I was okay. so uncomfortable. I was like, oh, my God, if I miss something, it's gone. I don't get take two. Right. So I was so uptight until I got into a rhythm and started to figure things out. But I missed some stuff at the beginning and, you know, made some mistakes. But uh, Forgot to click the on button on the sound or something. Did do that once, yeah. yes. Uh, there was even one point where I was rolling and realized, wait, I'm supposed to see that little red record thing in the viewfinder, and I don't see that. Uh, Sorry, guys. Can I start the interview over because I don't think I hit the on button properly? Oh, no. oh, God. And eventually I got into it, but it gave me a lot of respect for documentary filmmakers, sound yeah. men, especially documentary uh, filmmakers who had to make movies with film. Oh, yeah. You've got X number of rolls of 16 millimeter film out in the middle of wherever you are. Good luck. And also, while you're rolling, it's like, I have a minute on this mag. Hopefully, this, whatever it is they're doing, don't say anything special. Well, hopefully this, you know, <laughs> hopefully he gets to the top of the pyramid before I before I roll out or whatever, you know what yeah. I mean? It's like And um, now it's so easy you can turn the camera on and roll for 2 hours. Yeah, just turn yeah. it on when you walk in you the room leave it. and then yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um which I talked about this with somebody about still cameras, I think Chris. Um you know, it's a bit of spray and pray with still cameras digital now which he was admiring my yeah i noticed that big pile <laughs> my film of, cameras uh, yeah. Are, yeah i've got a pile of stock and lenses and um uh it's a little bit of the same thing in a certain way you know same with like uh, i'll take the adventure uh, the ad- the adventure that was not the word i meant to use well, you take an i'll take the example of nature photographers you know the people who capture yeah. those incredible pictures of the eagle that's just snatched the fish out of the water or whatever, and they, and they did it a, on film, and they laid there for two weeks to yeah, get it. Exactly, right. that's amazing. And now, like, I went to Africa on a safari, and I came back with three hundred pictures of a lion, and one of them was good. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like, wow, how did they? How did they do that? It's I've got a lot of admiration for anyone who can do that and do it well. Yeah, yeah, it's. I, well, it's just a different time. Progress, I guess. Yeah, but it's it's still a matter of how you use the tools. We have tools sure. they couldn't have dreamed of back when they were making Touch of Evil and doing the opening shot. And you can see it, or the opening of Catch-22, where they've got that great long take they did on the uh, on the big crane. Right. The camera bobbles and wobbles around all over the place, but it's great storytelling. Yeah. So they're still great shots. Now, if you did them, they'd be really perfectly smooth, but... There are lots of really perfectly smooth out, uh, shots out there that are crap storytelling. So it's right. still about how you use the tools. That's true. That's a great point. Um, yeah. And and the guy shooting the lion, you took 300 and got one. He's going to get 75 good ones probably. Right? Yeah, exactly. I think that was your point. Yep. Um, <clears throat> but I, I, I'd venture a guess that you had more than one good one. but. <laughs> Just knowing you have a, you know, you've been looking through a camera for a long time. I, I think you're you're better than average. Um, so that's that's really interesting. So, uh, and to start with your wife, how was that? Was that 
your wife directing. Yeah, she was directing. We we had a great time. It was actually a really good time spending time together. Uh, we had a few little tussles and I had one embarrassing moment where I said something not realizing the camera and mic were on and she was far away from me and then she oh. she was watching dailies that night in the hotel room and up it popped and I'm like oh oh dear oh <laughs> but uh no she's fantastic she did a great job she spent six months in the editing room they wow. you know, hired a professional editor she raised eighty thousand dollars on indiegogo to help oh is that how it. you finance it yeah wow and we put cool. some of our own money and i bought the camera package what'd you uh, what'd you buy uh sony fs7 Oh, cool. And all the various stuff to go on that. And it actually was a great camera for it. How large is that? I can't, I, I've seen one, but I can't when remember it's all which put one. together, you know, a little bigger than a red, maybe, but not much heavier. Like you this? Know, it, yeah. Foot long-ish? Basically. Oh, huh, cool. Okay. No, not too bad. No, that's a good package to be able to move around with quickly and get what you need. Um was it tough? Could you put it on your shoulder? You couldn't, right? Yeah, I used it on my shoulder a lot. Oh, you could get it on your shoulder. Yeah. Okay. And then for the running footage, I I, was, I thought, uh-oh, a lot of this movie is going to be running along with people. So I bought a little DJI Osmo, which is that little handheld uh, stabilized camera oh, yeah. with a 4K camera on it and ran with that uh, in races, marathons. I could run for a mile with the subject, run around them, interview them, and it worked great. Wow, cool. Yeah, it worked really well. That's that's a perfect use for that thing. That's that's really great because it's too much for like a whole Ronin or something. Yeah, I wasn't about. It's, I had no assistant. I was doing the whole. Th- um, right, well, there you, you know, go. Right, the you whole can't thing pull focus. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, yeah, that's cool. And this doing this documentary with her has turned you into a runner. <laughs> Completely against my, I don't know, good judgment. Yes, I finished my eighteen mile run this morning as we get ready for the New York Marathon in five weeks. Oh, so you did. That? I thought you said that was yesterday. That was this morning. No, that, was, that was this oh, morning. Oh my! How long did that take you? Oh, about three hours. <laughs> Golly. We're not going to break any time records, but we well, just want to get across the finish line without barfing. Yeah, I don't even know what's fast. I mean, what's fast to run? Because you're all right. Well, think about this: the guy who just ran the New York, uh, not New York. What was it? Berlin. The uh-huh. guy just broke the world record for oh, a marathon, wow. and he did it. I think in two hours, one minute, something seconds. He's running something like a 440 mile 26 times in a row. Holy cow. Yeah, it's just unreal. So we're going to be more like 10 and a half minutes a mile or something. Right, right, right. So we'll we'll be firmly in the middle of the pack. I'll go with you. I'll run the first 100 steps and then then wave. (laughs) The first bar we see, I'll I'll head off. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. That's awesome, though. I mean, I... I wouldn't want to do it, but it's kind of fun to have building up to something. And I mean, it's a big challenge and a, it will be a, a big accomplishment. Yeah, when you absolutely. When I'm done with it, I'll be very happy that I'm done with it. Um, ah, and this to go back to another episode. What was it called? Prickly, prickly heat. Um, uh, it's much like... Um, uh, <laughs> Oh boy, you you mentioned before you don't want to forget anything, and now I can't remember something. Um, you know, medicated powder. Ah, uh, uh, right, um, monkey butt. It, right. Uh, BJ recommended this stuff called prickly heat. I think I hadn't I think heard of that one. He said whatever it, skin you put it on, it becomes like ice. The stuff so I use is this stuff called Triglide. It was made for triathletes, oh. and it's literally a spray. It's like silicone on your body. You spray it on your feet, anywhere you think you might have some the chafing. Ni- the nipples. Oh, yeah. oh, they actually make stuff to stick over them for that. You wear pasties? Nip strips. Yeah, basically. 
Yeah. Nip strips? Is that what Nip they call strips. them? Yep. Oh, man. I guess so. You learn all sorts of weird stuff when you kind of get into something new. Well, it does remind me of back in my days when I was a surfer and um, people would wear rash guards. But we surf so much, you know, you're laying on your chest and stomach on that board so much and you move around. And my my nipples were like calloused. <laughs> and my and my chest, you know, the main parts that hit like um, like right at my sternum that, that hit the, the board most would have almost like a... A callus on them, so I guess you get you can get used to anything. I guess so. I'm going to put this on the least likely topic we were going to touch on today. I'll just <laughs> add that to that column. <laughs> you know, wherever wherever the conversation wanders is fine with me. Fair enough. <laughs> um, but back to the conversation you wanted to have. Um, uh, so you shot this documentary, but you've sh- I noticed you've shot some things before, including a feature, correct? Oh yeah, I did one of those uh, Blumhouse horror movies that was produced by Michael Bay's company. Okay. Uh, I had done Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles for Brad Fuller and Andrew Form were the producers who work for Platinum Dunes, which is Michael Bay's company. I had done a bunch of Michael Bay movies. So they uh, gave me the same chance they gave Jacques Giffray. Um, they, he'd been doing a bunch of work on the Transformer movies with Michael Bay, and they said, hey, let's let Jacques shoot a movie. So he shot The Purge, and he's done every one of them since then, I oh, think. Oh, he has? Yeah. Oh, good for him. And he's done really well and so they gave me the same kind of opportunity I shot that movie Ouija um, which not a bad little like five million dollar movie made a hundred million dollars worldwide made a hundred yeah I've done a few of those movies and they you know Blumhouse has the formula down and that was one of them but it was fun to shoot because it was over Christmas it was only a tier two film I was thinking, all right, what do I do? I called. Oh, it was it. a tier two. Yeah, you lucked out. Well, it started as tier one, and ah. then they did two weeks of reshoots that shot it up over the budget limitation or the budget line, so it became tier two. You and know, everybody that, got retroactive checks to. That's always and, nice. It was great. Well, tier one to tier two is a big, big difference. Jump. To big, big, like double, I think. Might have been, but it was great because I just called in all my favors, mm-hmm. and I was very lucky to get like the grip crew that did the Avengers, the <laughs> camera crew that did Avatar. You know, <laughs> so the producers are looking at me going, hey, "This is great! All right!" And we were <laughs> right. in L.A. at home at Christmas. The only problem becomes money. You can do anything then and, as long as you can afford it, right? Yeah, and I was so grateful to have such a talented, experienced crew. It made my life easy. We had a great time shooting it. It's just you know not a great piece of cinema but we were happy with how it looked yeah and uh it was fun to do that but the you know and there's a part of me that keeps thinking i should have splintered off and been dping by now right but the jobs for operating keep coming uh i get to be home you know the jobs that are dp jobs are all want to send me off to toronto or hungary Hungary or whatever so i i can't really complain about where i am at the moment with the operating career it's it's going pretty well yeah, that's good. That's yeah. great. Um, I'm surprised to hear you did reshoots with Blumhouse. Who do you know who paid for those? It was uh, I would assume Blumhouse, but they do that Blumhouse a lot. Blumhouse has a really hardcore no no reshoot thing. They we didn't actually shoot an, a real viable ending the first time through because oh, so it they was knew. A plan. Yeah, they were uh, like, you know what? We don't really have the end of it. We're going to rework this. Oh well, that's different. We okay. shut down and gotcha. then came back later and. It was like finished, we did a significant finished shoots and then some pickup reshoots. They changed quite a bit of it. Gotcha. But uh, their, their thing is also, you know, they'll make 10 movies, but they'll only release three of them. Yeah. So, yeah. But the business model still seems to be working. He's a smart guy. They've figured out, I mean, it's quite honestly, it's great 
in some ways for crew because they're making movies in LA. Um, the pay is very low. They've figured out a way to kind of maneuver through the channels, <laughs> through the unions and all that stuff. And it's smart on their part, and they're not they're not really doing anything wrong. But you know, I was pretty lucky because we had uh, we had Platinum Dunes involved, so we had Michael Bay's producers, and they made the whole thing much classier, whole and different animal. Yeah, it was. You know, we had a real caterer. The hours weren't grueling. The pay was decent. It was it was a real movie. You yeah, know? the whole experience was actually really good. I mean, I've done a, I've done a couple with them. Honestly, I've done. I've done three full movies with them, and then I did like, well, part of another one, um, and I made friends over there. You know, um, so I don't have anything against them, right? But you no, know, they're good. Like Rick Osako's over there, producer, and Laura Altman, and some of the other people in the office, and they're actually really good. I know Rick and Laura. Yeah, yeah. both both very cool people. I like both of them. Um, but um, anyway, yeah, um, they're they're um, they're cranking movies out, man. It's. Um, it's great. It's great that they shoot in L.A. It's good. Yeah. I like it. Mostly. Mostly. I think they shoot some here and there, but... They do jump around. Location-specific yeah. stuff. I Get Out shot in... Was it somewhere else? Atlanta? I don't know. where. I think shot. South Carolina. Oh, okay. But maybe... I might be wrong, but yeah. Um, uh, yeah, so... And then you've shot Second Unit on a bunch of stuff. Uh, maybe not a bunch, but... Uh, a couple things. Uh I was a couple the, big things I thought. Did the, I? What was it? The biggest one was Triple X Two, the um, or Three Triple X Three with Vin Diesel. Uh, Dan Bradley was the second unit director, and I had been his operator on the feature he directed as, as the first unit director. And he had said to me, "Someday I'm going to hire you as my second unit DP." And oh, cool. I didn't really think that that would happen. People say that kind of stuff all the time. And right. Was, uh, true to his word, and he hired me to do a movie in Atlanta called Triple Nine, which was a uh, smaller budget cop show and we did car chases and stuff like that oh cool and yeah. then after that he hired me to do the triple uh, x thing shooting second unit and it was a big deal it was four months we were in the dominican republic and wow. toronto and i had you know like 15 cameras and it was just insane giant stunts giant. yeah right yeah, yeah yeah that's um that's fun it's it was fu- different yeah <laughs> did i mean when you're sitting in front of the monitor, does it ever drive you crazy? Like Absolutely. You I yeah. hate sitting in front of the monitor, but Dan hired me more so that I'd be an operating DP on that. I was on a camera for a lot of it, except for when we had such big stuff that I had to be coordinating a ton of For the of second cameras. unit stuff? Yeah. You were, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I would do all the pursuit car stuff. Right. Or, you know, I was usually on a camera somewhere. Right. Yeah. He trusted you, and yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's cool. Um that's best of both worlds, I guess. That was an interesting experience. I did find myself one day walking past the other operators, and I looked at them and I said, don't ever move up. <laughs> I mean, come on. We know we've got the best job on set. Yeah. Operator, you know, first in, last out. Wait, no. Last in, first out. That's it. Yeah. That's last in, first out. No production meetings. No lunchtime meetings. And you're right there at the camera all day, every day, at the heart of the movie-making process. Mm-hmm. And it's just a great place to be. So... It's hard to beat the job we've got. Agreed. Agreed. It's pretty great. Yeah. Um, yeah uh, so, speaking of, did you operate on Ouija too? Or? Yeah, I did. I had a B camera operator who I trusted, uh, David Richard, who I could just say, I need the close up from over here or get me the profile or whatever. And I hardly ever looked at what he was doing until it would pop up in dailies when the few times we ever even saw dailies. 
So I just trusted him to do his, You've known uh, his him. thing. You've known him yeah. before, right. Yeah, yeah. But uh, part of the deal was, you know, Andrew Formy, the producer, said to me, we get you to DP this. We also get an operator we wouldn't normally be able to afford for a movie of this level. They're getting, but they're getting bonus yeah. talent. Exactly. That's a good point. So you did Steadicam on it too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's cool. Um, if you, what was the question I was going to ask you? Jeez, I'm blanking. Um, when you're, when you're, you mentioned that you would say to him, I need this from here or whatever. Uh, I need the profile or whatever. When you're working for somebody else, do you, how do you like to work? Do you like, What's your preference? I know it, you don't get to pick, but if you're you talking could. about as a DP or as, no, an, as an operator, operator you, what's your preference? Getting everything directly from their director, everything from the DP, some oh, okay. combo, or them just saying, "Find us a shot." Or you well, know. there's several different ways I can go. I've worked with directors who look at you as the person whose job is to put the camera in the right place at the right time. Period. Nothing else. I don't want any input from you creatively. Just do it and make it right. Mm -hmm. And David Fincher's like that. Worked with him quite a bit. And he knows exactly what he wants. And he wants you to execute exactly what he wants. Right. So in that situation, I look at the challenge as being, okay, I am trying to do what he wants as best I can. Right. So you shut down the creative part maybe because that's not what he's looking for. And you concentrate on the technical execution part. Mm -hmm. uh, can I make this look like he wants? And in his case, if it's Steadicam, he hates Steadicam. Yeah. And so he'd say, I want it to look like this is on linear railings. It's got to look like it's on, it's got to look like a motion control shot. And so you just drive yourself to do that. And so the best stuff I've ever done was probably for him on Seven because he just beat that into me. It's got to be perfect, got to be perfect. But then you also work for a director who doesn't really have an exact idea of what he wants. He wants to see something on the monitor. Show me something. And that's more creatively fulfilling. There are challenges in both ways of working. Saying which one, I mean, one is more creatively fulfilling, one is more technically challenging. There are things that are fun about both those. But definitely from a creative standpoint, working with, with someone like Seamus, we see things the same way. Or I've done a bunch of movies with Mitch Amundsen and we came up doing, like I was the B operator on a lot of movies where he was the A operator. And when he started shooting, he hired me as his A operator. So we see things the same way. Mm -hmm. We look at a shot and we both know the lens we're going to use and it's there's a shorthand. You kind of just mumble a couple things, go, yeah, okay, boom. And you're on You the, don't have to ask him if, you, yeah. if he likes the framing. And so <clears throat> I do like that and you show him something and maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. You make some modifications. But I do like it when the director and DP are interested in what I have to offer. Mm -hmm. And I've been on a lot of sets and around a lot of different environments and scenes and seen the way a lot of different directors do things. So if you pay attention from the operator's point of view, you can gain an amazing amount of knowledge and experience. And if they want that to be part of my job, I'm thrilled and I'm happy to offer that up. Uh, and yeah, that is more rewarding ultimately. Yeah. Uh, you know, you mentioned Fincher. And my instant thought was, well, there are very few people who can who can direct that way. <laughs> Fincher's one of them. Um, you know, maybe Wes Anderson, those types. But the hard part about working for somebody where you're just doing the technical parts and getting the camera where it needs to be is if they don't have great ideas, but they're dead set on doing them. <laughs> I've been lucky in that the people I've worked with that are like that 
are good at what they do. Jim Cameron's pretty much like that. He right. said to me on Avatar, he said, what I really want is to be able to just plug a joystick right into your cerebral cortex and be able to control you. <laughs> and I thought, okay, that pretty much says how the relationship is supposed to work right there. I do what he says and yeah. put the camera where he says to put it. Yeah. You know, he's not looking for creative input from me when I was doing the 3D stuff on Avatar. So my job became, okay, try to do it the best I can. Right. Try to interpret exactly what he says and make the camera do exactly what he wants. Yeah, absolutely. Right. right. Um, and that can be a hard job. Just the interpretation can be tough at times. Yeah. Because you're not always... I mean, Fincher sees everything. I've never worked with a director who's more... Um, aware of where the camera is and what it's doing. Mm-hmm. Doing a long walk and no talk. It was just a walk with Brad Pitt down a hallway. And there was a light, uh, you know, Kina Flow hidden in the back top of the, uh, the set that Darius Kanji had put up there. And I thought, okay, Fincher wanted me to be, you know, he wanted the camera low in front of Brad. And over the course of this long walk down the hallway, that Kina Flow came into shot. So I very slowly boomed up over the course of the whole shot, maybe six inches. And at the end of the shot, Fincher was like, why are you booming up? I don't want to see you booming up. I didn't tell you to boom up. And I thought, wow, he could see that. And so when I told him why I was booming up, he says, I don't care. See the light. It's just out of focus blob in the background. I don't care. I want the camera where I want it. It's like, okay, no problem. I'll put the camera where you want it. But see, that's hilarious to me that first it's amazing that he even noticed that. Yeah. 99.9. You're not going to put anything past him. The the funny part is that he he doesn't know that there's a light back there. And then when he finds out that's why, he says, I don't care about the light. No, fair enough. But <laughs> he the, cares about you coming up six inches over a 50-foot walk, but he, you know. The truth is, because I didn't show him the light, that's probably why I didn't know it was there. Right. But he was right. Once, you know, when I didn't boom up and I stayed low, it is just a soft, out-of-focus ball of light in the background. You can't tell what it is. It doesn't look it like is, it right. doesn't belong there. Right, right So right. he was right. Yeah, it just—it's just funny to me. Like a perfectionist like that, what you would expect would not, not want a light in the back of his Which frame. Which is why I boomed up a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Right, 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 right. And you're like, "Oh, I'm I'm doing what you want. I what I think you want." And sometimes you just get it wrong. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no matter. Sometimes <laughs> trying too hard. Well, I have I've noticed that too with those very strict. Like this is what I want. People, the harder you try, sometimes the worse it can be. Um, just your like. Sometimes it's just simple, in my in in my opinion. Sometimes you just have to hit yourself in the head with a hammer a little and go, okay, put camera here, you know, and not try to interpret something that's not there. Because I'm trying so hard to get any kind of creativity into it, right? <laughs> that I'm trying I'm trying too hard, you know. Um, I I don't know if you've ever been there, but I've definitely been there once or once or twice. Oh no, I've done uh, things where I made a decision in the middle of the uh, middle of a shot. And it was the wrong decision, and I got called out in front of the whole crew. And you, you take your beating. It's one of the funny things about our job is everybody can see when you screw up. Oh yeah, even more so every day. Yeah, exactly. And now so there you, are twenty monitors on every set. Yep. So you become, you know, you get the Teflon shoulders, and everything kind of slides off because you're gonna screw up, and they're gonna call you on it, and you can't be too sensitive about it. Yeah. Yeah, I've been I've been yelled at before. I once got yelled at. On one of those small Blumhouse movies. Um, and actually the director's big director and the, the DP was the, the younger guy. Um, anyway, I'm doing a shot that the, the, they set up. I framed it a different way. 
Well, we looked at it different ways. I framed it without this thing in it, but it made the... Anyway, it was one of those I have to choose one evil or the other kind of thing. And there's no calling art to fix it all. It, you know, there's just no money for that or drive right. and all that. So I decide how I'm going to do the shot. Um, after take two, the director's cool. After take two, the DP's like, don't do it that way. Tilt up, whatever. I'm like, okay. Uh, I do it that way. The director comes over. Uh, don't do it that I like the way you had it before. So the monitor's 100 yards away. I'm trying to get my assistant to go tell the DP that the direct, you know, it doesn't happen in time. I you do the shot at. the director's way. You're going to get last guy that was from there. the DP. The last guy that was there, yep. of course. <laughs> Why'd you do that? I said, I'm sorry. Rob came over and asked me. He said he liked it better. I don't give a shit what he likes. Okay, well, great. Uh, it's one of the problems with our job. I, I will always remember... The, 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 sorry, the oh, whole point, I forgot oh, the right. point of the telling the story. Sometimes I get off on tangents. But the whole point was my dolly grip was very young, my first was very young, and my second was very young. And they all want to be operators <laughs> eventually. <laughs> and I get screamed at, and I just went, uh-huh. And he walked away, and I turned around to them, and I was like, so you want to be operators, huh? And they were all just, like, looking down at their feet. <laughs> Like this shit just happens, you know. I didn't, yeah. whatever. But anyway, sorry. No, I was just gonna say the the cl most clear cut case of that I've ever had was a director came up to me. Uh, it was Oliver Stone uh, on the one movie I did with him, and Bob Richardson was the DP. So which which movie? Nixon. Okay. Uh, so Oliver comes up to me, and he had wanted to do the scene handheld, and it was gonna be a long scene, a lot of stuff. And I think Bob was just kind of like, I don't want to carry that damn Panaflex around all afternoon. I'll have Dave do it with Steadicam. So Oliver leaves go to, to go to his trailer. Bob's lighting the scene, has me set it up as Steadicam. Oliver comes back in, sees I'm doing Steadicam, and he's like, goes up to Bob, what the, what the hell? I thought we were going to do this handheld. Uh, Dave will do it Steadicam. So Oliver comes up to me. And the, one of the weirder questions I've ever had, he's like, your friends know you're you're good at this, right? I'm like, what? He said, you're okay with it, where you are in your career? And I kind of went, reasonably comfortable? Sure. <laughs> Why? Because I want you to make this look really like rough. I don't want it to be good st uh, uh, steady cam. It's got to look handheld. It's got to be really, really kind of rough, and I want it shaking all over the place because it should have been handheld. And I thought, great, okay, uh, sure. And he walked away, and Bob had overheard him. So right before we roll, Bob leans in and he goes, "Make it as smooth as you can," and walks away. Oh God! <laughs> and rolling. And I was just like, oh God! Can you guys talk to each other, please? So, yeah. um, I remember Henry Turrell was actually the focus puller on that. Really? Not, yeah. <laughs> and uh, it ended up being a fast enough scene. I thought, all right, well, I'm just going to do it the way it feels right. I can't shake and roll the camera around. It's just going to look like bad steady cam. But it was a fast enough scene and animated enough that Maybe it just had some, had some energy. Yeah, exactly. Stuff. Fast pans, things like that, that luckily we got away with it. Nobody yelled? No, no one yelled. <laughs> and everybody seemed relatively happy? We they had, their, yes. they had their little internal battle quietly. I guess so. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it was the clearest cut case of do this, no, do that, action. What? Yeah. So it is kind of a funny thing about the job sometimes. I've 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 been there. Uh, I was once there in the in the middle of the desert on a salt flat, and one's in one ear and one's in the other, and the the wind's blowing. I, I'm sure you've shot in the salt flats many times. You know how it's just always a perpetual twenty mile an hour wind or whatever it feels like, and, yep. and gusts right. So it's nightmare for Steadicam, and it's like a three-minute wonder, and 
these people are idiots, let's be honest. <laughs> and one's saying, you know, do this, do this, do this. And the DP is saying the exact opposite. And, and I put the rig down after the third, uh, before the third take, I think. I just put the rig down there. What are you doing? We got to roll. I said, I'm not doing shit until you talk to you. Like, you guys figure out what you want and then tell me. Right, because we're, we're working both. against each other. I can't do both. Yeah. If you want me to do one your way and then one your way, that's fine. Figure it out. Figure it out before I, you know, don't make me suffer <laughs> standing here. I don't know. It was one of those jobs where if it was bigger, if they were, you know, it was like a one. Yeah, if they were pros, I would have dealt with it probably a little less confrontationally. But, <laughs> you know, you're in the desert. You slept at, you know, I've slept in Baker at the Bun Boy Motel. You know what I that mean? That doesn't like, sound good. It wasn't. It wasn't. It was one of those things. An hour and a half drive every morning to get. It's just garbage. So I was a little moody. <laughs> I can I can be that way. <laughs> um, you mentioned Seven before. And I love that movie so much. I remember distinctly seeing it in the theater with my good friend Jason in college. Mm-hmm. Um, loved it. Loved it, loved it, loved it. Yeah, it's a, it's good a freaky movie, and it movie looks love, amazing. But looks unbelievable. Yeah, Darius was quite a talent. It still is, actually. He's still making movies. Yeah. Um, what did you guys do anything special to that? Like, as far as um, obviously shot 35, um, anamorphic? Uh, spherical. Spherical, okay. Super 35. Okay. I just I think. Rem- okay. I just remember thinking. It, was there a desat, desaturated look? It's been a while since oh, I saw Oh, that was back when they were doing, uh, Darius was experimenting a lot with um, silver retention. Is, that's what he did. Yeah. I knew there was something there. Yeah. Yeah, he was sort of the master of that. And uh, silver retention process and bleach bypass. Uh, did both. I, if I recall, I'm not 100% sure. He'd use a lot of smoke, and then the process would sort of burn through the smoke but you'd still get the beams and the flashlights and it just gave it that kind of you know that chrome look that just is so cool yeah yeah the whole thing just looked i mean the production design on it was fantastic too yep um the scene where he's got all his journals when they finally find his where he lives and they go in there and there's like a million journals oh the detail Yeah, yeah just the detail of it all was like crazy and creepy and that everybody knows the last scene which is i think a cinema classic what's in the box what's in the box (laughs) (laughs) what's he say john doe has the upper hand (laughs) right isn't that it i don't remember i wasn't there for that he's calling the chopper well you saw the movie yeah but i can't remember the uh actual dialogue no that was a i believe that was a reshoot Oh, really? Yeah. I was really only there for the Steadicam. I wasn't on the whole movie. Oh, you didn't? Oh. No. Conrad Hall Jr. was the A operator. Oh, he was? Yeah. I oh, was okay. the I was brought in for Steadicam. That was back in the days when Steadicam was still gun for hire. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And right at the beginning of when they were starting to hire Steadicam operators as the B camera Steadicam guy, because they wanted one all the time. But Fincher, with his dislike of Steadicam, didn't want one around and only used it when he had to. Right, it was a, it was a. We can't fit a crane in here. Bring David. Yeah, or we got to go down the stairs or whatever. Um, right, but there are, there's a fair amount in there. Isn't there's it? more in that one than in a lot of his other movies. Chris did stuff in Fight Club after that. That's fantastic. There's a lot of Steadicam in there that's really, really good. Mm-hmm. But bit by bit, he's used less and less Steadicam. Yeah. Um, yeah he gave me funny. the best compliment I've ever had in my career, and I'm going to take it to my grave with me. Might have it put on my tombstone. Uh, I was just in for a day doing something on, was it, uh, Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, 
and I was standing there at the catering truck and he was behind me and he said, Dave, you know, you're the reason I don't use Steadicam anymore. And I thought, this could be bad. <laughs> so kind of looked at him a little nervously. Uh, meaning? He said, well, you're never available. Wow. And so I'm taking that one with me. That's high praise. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's high praise. That meant a lot. That's really cool. That's that's nice. Um, was that here in L.A.? That was when they were shooting at Paramount, yeah. Okay. They were on stage for that's that. It's another part. great film. I, I liked it. I yeah, think it was like kind it. of a failure money-wise. Well, it, it kind of... The original Swedish one was actually pretty good, so it was kind of weird that it needed to be remade. Yeah. What somebody I haven't seen the Swedish ones. I I purposely didn't because I'm a big fan of Fincher and just wanted to mm-hmm. you know wanted a fresh um, take. But somebody said it's like well it seems almost like shot for shot remake. Oh I, I know it wasn't no. but but they kind of said it that way. Um, yeah I still liked it. I don't know subtitle the, the Swedish ones in Swedish right. Yeah, exactly. So I mean subtitles. I don't have a problem reading a movie. I don't have. I shouldn't say I don't have a problem. I prefer not to. It distracts from the visuals and ah, there's somewhere it's even better that way. Like you watch Das Boot in the original German and it's so much more intense than when it is dubbed. Really? Yeah, absolutely. Huh. Okay. All right. Well, that's good for reference in a, in a general sense, I guess. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that movie was creepy and crazy and good. Um, Let's see. So, how many days do you think you did on seven? Do you remember? Uh, I really don't know. It's. I mean. I mean, like a couple weeks no, total. Yeah, Five days total. Ten days. Something ten like day, that. Okay. I don't know. Uh-huh. Well, that's a and good. Still some of the best stuff I think I'll ever do. Really? Yeah. It's just because it was the you know the technical. There was some staircase shots where I had to go backwards downstairs. Uh, I remember. I think when you were talking to Comites, he was talking about how he goes backwards downstairs and tells the actors. Don't worry if I stumble and stagger. I don't mean to distract you. I'm not actually going to fall over dead. Just keep going. going, Yeah. (laughs) And uh, the key grip on seven was Michael Koo and Mike Brennan is his dolly grip, and he's fantastic. In fact, I think he's up this year for the SOC Lifetime Achievement Award. No way! Wow. Or uh, dolly grips. Awesome. And he, you know, he's one of many people who deserves it. But he's Michael Brennan was fantastic, and he's a big guy. Right. So. Uh, before I had to do this shot heading down the stairs leading uh, Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt, I had a chance uh, to go rehearse on the stairs I was going to be shooting on because the main unit, you know, A camera, was shooting some stuff um, in a different part of the building. Mm-hmm. And they weren't going to get to this setup for two hours Who or so. Who knows, right? Yeah. yeah. So I think Mike was the B dolly grip on that. So he and I went and I looked at the staircase and David Fincher had said, at the bottom of the staircase, there's a door. You have to get the camera to go exactly through the center of the door as you back through it. And I said, back through it? And he says, yeah. Well, you can't go through forward because then the camera's off to one side or the other and you have to go through dead center. And I thought, okay, that means several landings and stairs all backwards and the scene leading into going down the stairs. Or or getting out of Don Juan before the doorway. Which isn't going to happen. Okay. Yeah. I'm, it's not going to happen with the camera having the control necessary to make David Fincher happy. Right. Right. So what I did was just rehearsed with the dolly grip going backwards down the stairs without the steady cam. I just did it over and over and muscle over until it. the muscle memory took over. And then I think I had a little handheld recorder. That was back when steady cam operators walked around those little uh, we all we all had those little 8 mil recorder mm-hmm. playback decks that had a little LCD screen on them. Yeah. So I took some shot I'd done from another movie that was on a tape, hit play, and I'd watch that while I walked backwards down the steps until I was like, okay, I can pay attention to something else now while my body's walking down these steps. 
Now it's time to put the rig on. That's hilarious. So then it that's put, a great idea. Yeah, it worked out. And then I put the rig on and started going backwards down the steps. And Mike, you know, um, thank God he was there because there was one take where I fell. I slipped and he caught me. We kept going. For all I know, that's the one in the movie because when we looked at playback, you couldn't you see couldn't where it tell, happened. Right. Yeah. So he saved me on that one. But <laughs> I'm I'm like Comites. If I'm going downstairs, if I'm going to do it well, I'll be going down backwards. Same. Yeah. Same. I I, I don't think I've ever done. A legitimate Don Juan shot in anything I've worked on. <laughs> That's pretty funny. I mean, I've tried it before. I right. just it doesn't. I start walking like, you know, I'll be I'll do a giant circle eventually. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a fan of it. I mean, I think the person who practiced it probably more than anybody was uh, well, Larry McConkie probably or Bob Yuland. I know they were actually yeah pretty um, good at it. I've seen now. Well. I had the idea back in the day and still never, never did try it. I guess I could try it, but to spin the, with my master series, I don't think you can do it with a pro, but with my master series, you could literally turn the whole, I've done it with the pro cause I've mounted the camera pointing backwards with the monitor forward. Oh, you just mounted it backwards. Yeah. Okay. And how'd that work for you? It worked. And then I would, I can't remember for sure. I'd flip the monitor so that left to right would change or whatever. Yeah. But there's also another that. trick where if you don't flip it, if you look at the monitor and pretend that that subject is actually in front of you, it works. It works. Panning right. panning right, the camera will actually pan the direct, the correct direction behind you. It will still, it will still pan right. Yeah. But it's left to you if you're thinking back. Yeah. That's really funny. That's interesting. Um, yeah. So have you done that a bunch of times or just? Uh, sometimes I, I generally try to avoid it like anybody and I'd rather walk backwards if I can, but if it's a running shot, now we've got so many good tools for doing faster shots and they've got the grip tricks and yeah. the, uh, like Herbalt's got his, uh, electric ATV, uh, which is a great tool. I haven't and, used that. No, one it's, yet. it's, you know, um, you can drive it into an elevator up and you can drive out of the elevator down the hall. I mean, it's fantastic. And it's that small. Yep. Cool. And stuff like that means we don't really have to run in front of people for the most part anymore. Right. Yeah. We can run behind them a little, maybe. Run behind them a little. For part of a but shot. But there's better ways to get a better shot. If we're going to do a running long running shot, there's no reason to run. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, plus, you know, inherently when you run, your shot the steadiness of your shot it's the chance fall apart a bit exactly right yeah. and so you're actually i mean production's getting what they pay for the director's getting what you know they're qu more quickly getting the take they like mm -hmm. and instead of having the actor do it 20 times and kill everybody you do it twice or whatever it takes right and most of the production managers and people now are pretty savvy about it and it's like oh we're going to be running in front of people get the vehicle mount the rig you know, right yeah and it's insurance i mean you know, my my only I'm knocking on wood again. The only fall I've ever had was running behind a stunt girl. You know, where something went slightly different, and I tried. You've only fallen once. You're I'm not still trying hard enough. <laughs> <laughs> I've come very very close on many occasions. I've been caught. A DP caught me once when I stepped in a hole in a cornfield. A, a dolly grip caught me once when I completely missed a step. Uh, coming backwards downstairs you know so i could have fallen a lot of times and my worst one was i was running full speed at a stuntman who was running full speed at me it was like a joust and we're just sprinting at each and other you're supposed to run right He's, past yeah supposed other. to be a fast pass right <gasps> past camera and at the last second he couldn't remember which way he was supposed to go 
so he just dropped. And everyone said from the side, it looked like all he did was a flying tackle at my legs. Took my legs right out from under me, and I just went full horizontal and smashed everything right all over the ground. I drove the camera into the ground to keep from driving my face into the ground. Same, yeah. And just splattered it all over the place. Oh, boy. So he dropped. Instead of picking a side... He 50, went 50 right chance, my feet. He went 100% that he's going he's gonna to try to injure It you. just took me out. Yeah, I mean, just, obviously, that's not in his not, head. Not the best uh, decision, no. Boy, bad decision-making <laughs> at the last minute. It's funny, though, those stunt folks, a lot of them are new a lot of the time. Um, yeah, I don't actually know. what it, it was, That was on a TV show a long time ago called High Incident. Uh, but I don't know what his experience level was, but he, he made a bad decision then. Yeah, clearly. Um I was doing a show and we did a high fall and uh, in Union Station downtown. Hmm. It's pretty cool, actually. Um, and the stunt coordinator was this great guy. Um, but he hired a guy to do this high fall. And he was supposed to do one flip, I think. Whatever it was. He was supposed to do... A, I think he was supposed to turn like 180 as he fell and then do a flip and then land on the bag. You right. know. Uh, there was a very specific thing they practiced and practiced and they we get there on the day you know we have a descender rig we have you know we're in union station it's not cheap we blocked you know the whole thing off and um we're in that like rotunda between the trains and the main thing anyway um he goes and all he does is just straight off and you know flips over and lands on his back like the easiest jump which it's crazy that the guy, you know, I'm not doing that. Yeah, I don't want to do that either. But I saw the stunt, the stunt guy later. I was like, hey, the high fall went good. He goes, no, it didn't. I said, why? He goes, well, he didn't do what he was supposed to fucking do. He was pissed. And I'm like, I'm like, what was he supposed to do? And he told me. And he goes, yeah, but I mean, he cost himself five grand. He goes, he's getting his pay cut now because there's a tier level. No, interesting. You know? Or what? I don't remember right. the exact number. But um, So they didn't do it again? We did it once. Interesting. We did it once. I mean, it worked. The guy just had to fall off. It's just now a matter of the actor when he gets up there matching, right? you know, a little bit or whatever. But it was fine. Um, that pilot we did, we did one take of a bunch of stuff. It was Joss Whedon directing. So he, when he knows he has not he has it. He moves All on, right. which is great. Um, makes a day shorter. <laughs> um, let's see. You mentioned uh, Vancouver, Toronto, Atlanta. Um You've done so much traveling over the years, and you mentioned it's nice being in L.A. I mean, did, did you enjoy traveling? Were you married? When oh, no. When I did most of the traveling, I wasn't. Uh, gotcha. And that's one of the best things about the job is the places you get to go, the things you get to see, the access you get to things you normally would never get a chance to see. Yeah. Yeah, Agreed. Agreed. But now that now that you're married, you went. Do you have kids too, or no, no kids? No kids. But, okay. uh, and I still travel. You know, I was in sure. Vancouver, and then I was uh, before that. I did uh, a quiet place in upstate New York, and I did something before that in Atlanta. So that's still travel. But I try not to do the go to New Zealand for four months or go to England for six months thing anymore. But I've had some great times with stuff like that. I got to go to you know I've been to Cambodia and Japan. China and Japan and Malaysia and New Zealand, Australia. I mean, all over the place. It's yeah. fantastic what you get to go see. Yeah, it's nice if you're in Vancouver. It's a what a two-hour flight for the wife yeah, or for you. Quick. Yeah, exactly. Or Toronto, four or five hours, whatever. Toronto's not the easiest one to get back and forth to, just because it's a long flight. But yeah, but it's not. It's not New Zealand. That's true. 
<laughs> or Prague or whatever. I mean, you know, you can do Toronto for a weekend. Yeah. Pretty easily. Um, you cannot do New Zealand for a weekend. No. You need a week. My wife came out to visit for uh, a week when we were doing the first Avatar. and I Was think, that New Zealand? Yeah. Oh, cool. The live action was in New Zealand. Right. Yeah. They do it there because of Weta? Uh, Weta, they get a good deal with Stone Street Studios, which is Peter Jackson, uh, Peter Jackson's studios there. And uh, they get the tax breaks from the government and you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Oh, okay. So they have multiple reasons. They employ a good chunk of New Zealand once they're there, probably. I bet. I, I wonder how big... I want to ask you about A Quiet Place, but before that, how big is the crew on Avatar? Like, how many... Here, right now, or when they well, go we to New break, Zealand? we could break it down. Let's yeah, because it's a pretty big crew here, but a lot of it is the technical side of things. There's all the animators and the people who build the uh, digital environments and all that kind of stuff. So there's... Um, but there's still... There's a big group crew that builds sets for all the actors to play on. Sure. And uh, so I don't know how many hundreds of people are, are actually on it, but uh, it's, it's a good size it's crew. It's definitely hundreds. Yeah. In, in L.A.? I think so. And yeah. then it'll be a lot more later when it's live action? Uh, I would imagine so. Right. Because uh, it's a New Zealand... They were talking about shooting it in L.A., and I think New Zealand made it so favorable. They said, no, come to New Zealand, do it again. We'll, we'll make it uh, a good thing for you. Yeah, well, they'll go down there and spend $50 million or $100 million. They'll spend plenty of money, yeah. Right. It's big. uh, For a small country like that, that's a big uh, infusion of cash. Well, I remember when we were down there on the first one, anytime you stopped and talked to someone, when they found out you were from Hollywood, they'd tell you, oh, I was in Lord of the Rings. Everybody down there did something in Lord of the Rings. The guy (laughs) filling your gas, the guy giving you your food. I'm sure they run out of extras. I was an orc. Yeah, exactly. I was an orc. (laughs) I was an elf. So they'd like take a day off work and go be in the movie. Yeah. That's hilarious. Yeah, that's great. That's cool. That's uh, I, now I think they do tours and stuff, and people literally are. Oh yeah, they'll take you all the places where they shot the movies. Yeah, exactly. Like, there's CGI all over the place, but this is a field they shot it in. Oh, exactly. like to me, it's here's where they hid under the tree. The tree's not here because that was a set piece, but this is where they put the tree. Right. Okay. Right. And the grass was a different color, and there's a mountain in the background, but that's gone. And someone's now built a house on it. Right. But that's where the tree was. Right. But it was there. Right. Any patch of dirt will do, essentially, when, when it comes to that. Um, no, you mentioned A Quiet Place. Uh, I, I still haven't seen it. I'm not really into thrillers or horror. Well, I'm into thrillers, but not like horror movies. And it's not really a horror movie. It's, it's more not. of a suspense movie. Okay. Um, it's a good, I should it's check a good it out. story. It's entertaining. Um, and I like John Krasinski. So. And Charlotte and Bruce Christensen, who shot it, did a great job. It looks good for a not big budget movie. And uh, I think they pulled off a pretty good one. It's made a lot of money for what it cost. So that was one of those good business uh, yeah. decisions for them. What what that cost? Do you have any idea? I forget what the budget was, but I thought so it made over $300 million and it couldn't have cost more than 20 or so. 300 I think so. Holy cow. Yeah. Good, for, good for them. Yep. Good for them. Krasinski is having a, having a moment. Yeah, definitely. Now he's off doing Jack Ryan stuff and... Well, that's done, isn't it? Probably. I mean, it's it's it online. I've the second it, season's already... Oh, are they doing second season? Yeah, I think they're already on the second oh, season. Oh, well, Working on the second I'm season. I'm sure they're shooting. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, then they're working on writing A Quiet Place too. Right. Good for them. Yep. Boy, he got in shape. He changed from the office. Well, yeah. Well, it was, not that he was out of shape. Uh, what was it? 13 hours when he played uh, one of the soldiers in that. He was. That's when he, I think... 
Yeah, I didn't see that yeah, one either. Really How was that? I didn't see it either. Oh, okay. Never mind. <laughs> Great movie. Everybody go. <laughs> um, hang on. You know what? I need a beer. Fair you a beer? You're empty too. I am empty. Let's have a moment and have a beer. Absolutely. Okay, great. It's working. <laughs> We're back. Sorry, little technical uh, difficulties there for a moment, I thought. Turns out, not really. Um, so we were we were talking um, uh, during our little beer break there about a couple of things. And uh, you, you mentioned Ted Churchill was your mentor. Yeah, he's pretty much the reason I ended up where I am. How did how did that happen? I was at NYU going to film uh, going to film school there, and oh. I had a teacher who uh, who suggested I talk to Ted Churchill when I pointed out that I was interested in Steadicam. I tried one on at a trade show. Simpty was the uh, the big trade show at the time mm. at the Jacob K. Javits Center, and I put a Steadicam on and was running around going, "This is the coolest thing ever! I want to do this." Right, it just clicked and. Wow. Joe DeSalvo was the operator showing it off at the time, and uh, he's a DP now on the East Coast. What year would this have been? 1986. <laughs> okay. A long time ago. I have somehow become a, grizzle, a grizzled veteran. I don't know what happened. I was the young <laughs> kid running around on the set, and now I'm not. Uh, so I'm in the same boat, so I can't make any comments. <laughs> <laughs> Tried that thing on, and I uh, thought, ooh, got to... Got to learn some more Steadicam stuff. So Ted was taking out the inside front cover of American Cinematographer Magazine with that famous ad of the vest that says experience. I don't know if you've ever seen it. I'm sure I have over the years. Yeah, you can look that up. It's like the best Steadicam ad anybody ever ran. It's this beat up, crappy old cinema products vest held together with gaffer tape, and it just said experience. (laughs) So I like the one of him standing with all his gear that looks like it's, you know, been in a garbage dump. Yeah. Actually, I think, isn't that from the uh, Manual of Style? You're right. Yeah. It's not an ad. It's not an ad. Was there one where he's like half and half, where half he's in a suit and half he's... Manual of Style. Yeah. Yeah. The ad, Chuck Pappert, I think, did I just call him Chuck? It's Charles. If you're listening, I mean Charles. (laughs) You're a DP now. I have to call you Charles. Uh, I think took the picture that he used in his pamphlets, which was this kind of devilish grin he's got with a Steadicam up over his shoulder. Yeah. And that's a really great shot. Um and Charles had actually spent a bunch of time with Ted. Uh, Ted was very generous with his time and passing stuff on uh, to the next generation. Yeah. So the ad had his phone number in it. I cold called him, said I wanted to do an interview with him for a class I was taking at NYU, and went to his apartment and talked to him for a couple hours. I've still got the tape. I've got to do a condensed version of it. Love to, you know, it's old, low lit, uh, noisy SD video, but. Wow, he was—he uh, was the guy. I mean, there's the standard. Actually, I don't have a standard anymore. A lot of Steadicam operators probably don't even know who Ted is now. But Garrett Brown invented the Steadicam. Ted Churchill invented the Steadicam operator. Is really the yeah. way we look at it. Sure. And he was just—he was great. He was great at it. And great at marketing it, great at marketing himself. Mm-hmm. And he took me under his wing and got me my first jobs, helped me get my first rig, and guided me and wow. taught me a bunch of great lessons like how to survive the politics of what happens on set, not just how to operate a steady cam, but how do you deal with a grip department that hates you? <laughs> yeah. 
all sorts of useful stuff. And yeah. I've used it ever since and very thankful that I had that experience. Can't imagine a better way to get into it. Yeah, the stuff that makes the job hard. The operating part's the easy part. <laughs> it can be, yeah. The, the politics can be such a pain sometimes. And you're thinking, really, I have to fight this as well as everything else that is going on? This is ridiculous. Right. Yeah, I feel that way so often, yeah. It's so nice. That's why we, I think uh, having talked to so many people now, I found that you have to have those so that when the really great ones come along, you're like, oh. like it sounds to me like uh, Bad Times at the El Royale was, yeah. was one of it those was one great, of the great ones, ones where it was just everybody liked each other, it was smooth, you had fun, and it's good. Someone it's a asked rare me, thing. Yeah, exactly. Someone asked me what the most important skill is for a camera operator. And, you know, once upon a time, I would have said the ability to technically do this, that. And it was, you know, I was very square about the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And looking back on my career and what's really made it work and where I see things that went wrong and how I was able to avoid them after that, the thing that I think is the most important skill for a camera operator is communication. Mm-hmm. You need to be able to talk to the director, the DP, your focus puller, your dolly grip, the sound guys, everybody. And you need to be able to do it right without threatening anybody's job or making them think you're causing a problem for them. Uh, I learned a lot of those lessons early on. A lot of people fear for their jobs. Mm-hmm. I was saying earlier how the operator is right out there in the open. You screw your stuff up, everybody sees it. But there's a lot of people on the set who are fearful for their jobs and don't want to be seen they're as making so far, any mistakes. Right. One so, little mistake, they're so afraid of Exactly. Making, right? And so you need to really be careful. Because they're not hardened like we are. I, I, I mean, that sounds a little... It's not cynical. It, not I, cynical. It, it, it sounds a little like, oh, hey, we're the operator. No, I just mean, I just mean we're but, used to it. No, ex- exactly. You, you do we get just advice get used to getting hammered produce, on all the time. We get advice from producer's assistants about how to do shots. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> 47 people are sitting back there by that monitor, and they all think they can do it because right. they own an iPhone. Or what, you know. So I mean, the, the ability to, to actually help deal with that everybody and <laughs> and and try to be a locus around which everything can come together yeah. is a really critical skill and it just takes experience to develop it i thought i was pretty good at my job after five years five years later i looked at it and went wow i didn't know what the hell i was doing five years after that i thought well i think i'm getting the hang of it it's now you know 15 years after that and i'm going i'm pretty sure i've got a hang of it but there's always something right it's funny how our brains work that way because I feel the exact same way you do. But you continually learn, mm-hmm. and then looking back, you're like, "I didn't know shit." Oh, it's but you you're know, blissfully if, ignorant. If if I didn't keep learning, I wouldn't be interested in doing the job. Right, right. You know, then that's when you get bored and it's time to do something else, like a podcast or something. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. I, I still- give you credit for doing this. I, I was like, I looked at your list of stuff, and I was like, "Hey, that's really cool that someone's actually going out and talking to these people." And I love the name of it. Walking backwards is just perfect. Took me a little while to come to, but thank you. Yeah, yeah I finally, I, I finally I got great. it. Yeah. yeah, thanks. I, I, it's. <clears throat> I have other things to ask you, but it funny little aside that because uh, I don't think you've heard this episode yet is the Rob Vona episode. The first six I did, I did at a bar. Interesting. No, I, I, sorry, I did, I did them in a studio, but I would meet the guys at a bar at, at this place called the Fat Dog, which I was just okay. mentioning to you. I'd meet them because the studio was like two blocks away. So I'd meet them there, buy them a beer. None of it had aired yet. So I would explain like, hey, here's what the idea is. I think we're just going to talk about this or that, you know. And then we'd go over to the studio. 
And anyway, I told Rob in conversation, oh, yeah, I'm thinking of naming it Walking Backwards. Well, during the podcast, he goes, oh, yeah, you named it Walking Backwards. I'm like, well, I, I guess I did now. I, guess I have to. Funny, that's how I ended up in the New York Marathon. <laughs> that, that's right. Like, my wife said, oh, yeah, we'll do that. And now we are. That's right. We didn't. We didn't quite get to. Oh, the did part. we not talk about that? Well, you talked about all this running and stuff, but you didn't. You oh, didn't. that was all off mic. Yeah, you didn't. You didn't actually mention that because you shot at the. Oh, okay, yes. Yeah, just a quick year. aside. Then the the <laughs> result of doing the documentary on running is that now I'm running and I'm actually running the New York Marathon in five weeks. And I ran 18 miles this morning with my wife. Oh, you did say that. That's yeah, right. And yeah. I. Yeah, if I'm repeating myself, then whoops. Uh, I can't remember. But I don't think you said you were running the marathon. I just think that's yeah. a really... Uh, yeah, it should did. be interesting. Yeah, you did. Shit. Oh, wow. We've I'll either there. cut this out or I won't. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, sorry. Sure, that's one of those things where it's like, I'm sure they'll cut this out. And then when you see the whatever it is, like, oh, they didn't cut that part out. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> You're either like, oh, it works. Or, oh, God, I wish they'd cut that out. Exactly. Anyway. Oh, well. Onward. Onward. <laughs> um, so, so Churchill became... Yeah, so... It, anything else to add about Ted? Uh, I, mean, I know he helped so many people. Yeah, exactly. You're, you're, he was a part of. Uh, Use that as a little segue into talking about something else we were uh, we were mentioning, which was the development of uh, the Pro, yeah, GPI, and all that. Because Ted, Ted had a little bit in that. Did um, he really? Yeah he he helped. He was one of uh, several operators who had input early on, and it started as a a project that George Paddock was interested in. And Chris and I had met him at a workshop, I think, in 91. Harhoff. He'd, he'd yeah, Harhoff. Sorry. Uh, That's he, all right. He'd come in. George came in with this Model 1 that he'd cut apart and turned into basically a Model 2. Or I can't remember if he'd made it a Model 3-ish. He might have gone to a single post. Anyway, everyone was looking at this thing going, wow, how do you do that? That's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. George had been uh, in the Navy, and he'd been a radar technician on submarines. Hmm. At six foot five. So he was really comfortable on submarines. Oh. Uh, but he knew the technology. He looked at what we were working with, those old CP rigs with the little, you know, high voltage CRTs. Yeah. And he went, this is crap. We can do better than this. I can build something better than this. And Chris and I were intrigued. And we're like, really? And he did. George is the one who went forward, got the financing, made the company happen. But uh, Chris Haroff myself and Marco Kane were the other three operators who helped him get it all together and had input and did testing and eventually bit by bit uh, helped him figure out how to put a whole sled together uh, then tested the arm Chris did most of the work with the arm I think Marco Kane probably had some to do with it as well and Ted helped with the gimbal I remember Ted was at one of the meetings in Mesa Arizona where we were going and looking for people to build stuff because George was in Mesa at the time mm-hmm and it was just part of us being fed up with the way cinema products dealt with operators. Uh, they wouldn't make what you what we needed. They'd charge too much for what they did make. Mm-hmm. And we kept thinking, there's got to be a better way to do this. Right. And so we built a better mousetrap, basically. And they, I guess in their mind, they're thinking, oh, well, we're the monopoly. We can do whatever the fuck we want. And we own all the patents. They'll pay what we tell them to pay, right? Um. Yeah, I think the way I mean, maybe not was, that arrogant. You can't patent a monitor, right? Basically, right, right, so yeah. the first thing George built was the monitor, and then was that the very first thing? Yeah, the monitor me? was the first. Uh, you know what? I take it back. They might have built the donkey box first, the uh, version one donkey box. I can't remember if they did that before the monitor or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Bob DeRose, who was involved in some of this stuff, 
Uh, he was building posts, and you could put a battery system on the bottom. You could use a Model 3 gimbal and your Model 3 arm and your Model 3 vest. And so bit by bit, we cobbled stuff together. And then when the patent on the arm was gone, George made an arm mm-hmm. and then made a vest and eventually made the whole right? system. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we, uh, George took it to Cinema Products and offered it to them, and they weren't interested. Offered to, to sell them the idea? The, the monitor. He said, look, we made a self-contained high-voltage monitor, which is what you said couldn't be done. Here's one. Put it on Eddie Julio's desk. Do you want that? He said no. And um, so George went off. I mean, which is too bad because Garrett deserved to get something out of it and never did. And yeah. we, we always kind of felt bad about that. But, uh, I mean, not that I don't think Chris or Mark got money out of it. I know I didn't. Uh, we had great service and we got to use the equipment early and we got stuff that worked and worked the way we wanted it to. So that was certainly a good enough return on uh, my investment of time. Didn't put money into it. Right. But you didn't get any, you didn't get any, uh, like free, free sled, free vest. <laughs> no, really? Uh, but I could walk into the shop and but you flew they'd to make Mesa, stuff for but me. You flew to Mesa. Right. Okay. I mean, you know, that's, that's awesome. Oh no, I got great service. But you and like I got flew the first to Mesa stuff. and worked on this thing. <laughs> I wanted stuff that worked. I was tired of having to hammer and pound on the thing and find broken parts in the case at the uh, when I got off the airplane, and I just wanted equipment that worked. That's a testament to how bad it was in it those was days. It was really awful. Yeah. Wow. So, and now there's all sorts of sleds. I don't even know how many sleds are out there. Tons of people are making sleds, and I'm still using a pro, so I don't know what else is going on out there. I mean, I think there are only four or five good ones, right? I mean, that I'm aware of that right. are good. Well, you're asking the wrong guy. Oh, okay. Because I'm going to say there's one. <laughs> well, you're a pro guy through and through. That's I mean, all I've ever used right. since uh, I got rid of my Model Two. Who's who was the 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 main the main component on the vest? Who whose thoughts were those? I know Chris had a lot to do with that. Did he? Okay. Chris Arhoff. Uh, I think he tested the first prototype. Uh, Marco Kane. It wasn't me. I'll say that it was Chris, Mark, and George probably who had the most to do with developing the pro vest. Okay, I'd give the credit to them. I should have asked Chris about this stuff, but, you know. He'd remember more stuff than I do. I mean, he's, he had a table. We were roommates. This all happened when Chris and I lived. Oh, really? Oh, we called it the Steadicam Halfway House. <laughs> I lived there. George at one time came through there. Um, oh, so that's how you knew George. We actually met him in a workshop first. Okay. But he was a friend of yours before all this stuff happened. Yes. I get it now. Yeah. Okay. And, and this I makes a lot more Chris, sense to me. Was friends with Marco Kane. We all knew each other. It's interesting. Early on, there weren't a ton of Steadicam operators, but we all knew each other and we all supported each other. And it wasn't, you know, uh, cutthroat at all. Right. We didn't really end up competing with each other in a way. We all developed our own clientele. And Chris and I were roommates for years. And we, uh, I remember sitting around a, his table in the living room and, sketching stuff for the pro various ideas and if i remember correctly he'd even scrape scratch stuff into the surface of the table but i think that table's long gone got sold in a garage sale or something like that but we had we had a great time trying to figure out how to make all this stuff work right huh um you mentioned it wasn't cutthroat was it was it cutthroat do you think it's cutthroat now well when I came out to LA, there were probably what twenty Steadicam operators, and now there's I don't know three hundred, four hundred beats me. I don't know how many there are, but I see stuff on the forums about how hard it is and how cutthroat it is. And I'm lucky enough that I was in that wave where I've got 
the experience level and the history behind me, my rates haven't been cut. I don't get undercut. Uh, I've got enough people who want me to do it. You know, Chris is there, Colin's there, mm-hmm. uh, Andrew Rollins is out of it now, but you've got, uh, you know, Scott Sakamoto and Jeff Haley and there's, a, you know, there's plenty of guys, Comites and, you know, yeah, you know yeah, the yeah. names. Oh, yeah. So I'm lucky enough to be part of a group where I don't have to worry about that, but there is a large group that has come in and a lot of it is, my understanding is in the TV world, they all got pitted against each other and you end up working for scale with a bump for your rig or something like that. So it, it sounds like it's a little tougher. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it's just, yeah. TV's a beater. You know, you work crazy hours and I, I, as you, as you know, I think I've done a lot of TV and you know, you can do some great work on it and some shows are some shows are better than others, you know. But right. <clears throat> but um yeah, it can be it can be tough. It's not you know, everything has its challenges and and um I, I don't I don't know that it's cutthroat though. That's why I don't know. Well, maybe it's, only the people who are it's complaining only the most th- pop out in the I forums. Guess I may be, but I I guess it's in, I'm sure is to some people once in a while or whatever. Um you know, even if there are always exceptions anyway, but I think the, the cut, any, any amount of cutthroat it is, is because people make it that way instead of, I don't know. I, I always try to share info with people. Unfortunately, that doesn't always do it. You know, there are simple economics of supply and demand and too many people have rigs. There are a lot more operators than there used to be, and 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 I hope that doesn't sound like I I would tell somebody not to not to try it or whatever. Right. But but when you know, if a million of us had a rig, where would the rates be? You know, when they sell a Toyota Camry, they price it so that it competes with a Chevy, whatever. You know what I mean? Because there are a shitload of cars out there. Um, that's that's basement stuff you know and that's in a lot of ways that's what it's it's not the specialty it used to be though i mean it used to be when the steadicam showed up and said it's like ooh, steadicam's here Mm -hmm. you know it wasn't something that you saw every day on every set and uh so it has changed but i feel i was lucky enough to sort of get in before that happened yeah i came in a little bit at the beginning of that happening there was a film most most everybody was still shooting film. There was an F nine hundred around, um, but you know day player rates were really good and stuff. And I've watched it. <laughs> like I'm, you know, if I go in and I day played on a show for you know a big show for a studio last week TV show, um, a couple of different ones, but one in particular, the UPM called me and said, "Hey, I understand you're coming in for our second unit day." I said, "Yeah." He goes, "Well, here's what I got, and that's it, and I won't pay a penny more." <laughs> And I go, nice to meet you. <laughs> like, and, I, you know, I've negotiated with a lot of people. I could tell there's no point in even talking to that guy. I said, well, that's exactly what I said. Well, if that's what you you say is that, then that's that, I guess. And I said, I'm, you know, I'll come in. It was okay. It's not like it was, like, terrible or anything. But obviously he's sick of having the fight, I guess. I don't know. He, um, But the funny part is I was in three years previously on the same show before it switched to digital when it was still film. Oh, and the rates were higher, way higher. Isn't that interesting? 
about 50% higher. Wow. And the rental was higher, too. That's not like the job got any easier. Job didn't get easier. Equipment didn't get any cheaper. I'll tell you what. The way they run the show now, it got a lot easier, but... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but that had nothing to do with the cameras or anything right. like that. But anyway, you know, it's just this is the world we're in now, you know. And I told BJ uh, when he was here, I made a lot of mistakes in the first few years of my career because I needed the work. But I was so afraid of being a bad guy to other operators that I would say no to stuff or I would fight them on money, you know. Mm-hmm. And that cost me a lot of opportunities because other people took it. And, now, you know, 10 years later, they're working on a big movie with that producer, you know. or And, you know, that just is what it is. But yep. <clears throat> you learn your lesson and you have to understand when to fight for more. That's why I pay an agent to do it. That's great. Yeah, because <laughs> um, I'm not a good deal maker. And if I had to do all that, I don't know where I'd be. Yeah, well, you know, out of necessity, I had to become one. Yeah, fair enough. And, and there's a lot of people who prefer it that way. It's just some people are predisposed a little more to it than others, and I guess. And I always try to be friendly. That's one. That's one thing I think people screw up. They don't. Sorry, I didn't mean to t- turn this into a negotiating rant, but it is an important part of the business yeah. for people. You know, even if you want to have an agent, there was a point when you did not have an agent and you had to do this. And but if you're, you know, what's the you catch more flies with honey than vinegar or whatever. You know, there's one thing you can be tough and be friendly at the same time. Yeah. Well, I've got Wendy Schneider as my agent and I often get comments from producers saying your agent is tough, but she's fair. They like her and she is able to get me better deals than I would ever get on my own. Right. And I'm not the bad guy. Right. So it's a luxury that is worth it to me. Yeah, that works out. And, you know, um, I'm not saying I wouldn't have an agent. I just don't happen to. Fair enough. But, um. But no, I think some people make make the mistake of them saying, well, we'll give you X and X amount of money. And they go, oh, that's ridiculous. You know, as opposed to saying, well, look, my normal, you know what I mean? It's a tone. Of, it's a tone thing. I think people make. Anyway, that's why UPMs get on the phone and go, all I have is. Yeah, exactly. That's my point. Anyway, we can get off of this stupid <laughs> yes, subject. Let's go talk about movies. <laughs> let's talk about movies. Um Speaking of that, did you mention the Green Mile earlier? We didn't really talk about yeah, it. Yeah, we haven't I think talked you about mentioned that. it. Um, I, uh, I really like that movie. Aha, you've seen one. Uh, <laughs> good point. <laughs> I've seen a bunch of them. As a matter of fact, I love Seven. I mean, it's in my. it might be in my top ten list. Oh, very nice. Um, Catch Me If You Can is a book I read when I was 13 years old that I was so happy to see being made into a movie. It's many, a good book, and it's a good later. movie, yeah. It's a great book. Um what else? Uh, you've definitely done. You've definitely done more. Uh, oh, Charlie Wilson's War. Now that was one. Uh, Will Arno did that movie. Oh, he did. All I did was uh, some reshoots. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. I mean, I had a great time. I on guess the, I the missed reshoots. it on the IMDb thing. I, I thought it. I uh, hopefully it says additional photography on there, but Will oh. Arno deserves, uh, deserves the credit for that one. Got it. I'll mention that to Will. But it was a chance to uh, work with Mike Nichols, and that was very cool. Yeah, well, yeah. I I was gonna mention the Mike Nichols part, which you still got to work, and and Tom Hanks and and uh, uh, Julia Roberts. I didn't work with Julia. I worked with Tom on that one. Um, I'd worked with him before on Green Mile, obviously, and Catch Me If You Can. Right. And actually, I've got a good Tom Hanks story. Please. From Green Mile. Okay. It's uh, takes a little while, but as far as operator story goes, this one's worth it. Uh, 
Green Mile was my first movie as the official A camera operator. I'd been doing Steadicam B camera prior to that. I'd done a couple jobs where your I first w- movie. Wow. For eight as a camera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Before that, you know, there were a couple movies, Con Air, Alien Resurrection, where I got bumped up here and there to do a camera. But, uh, you know, I turned 30, I think, so was still pretty young to be doing a camera on a big studio feature. True. And, in fact, on the first day, Tom, in the middle of a take, while the camera's rolling and we're doing a close-up on him, he looked right into the lens and he goes, Dave. Dave. And I'm like... I think he's talking to me. What? And I look around the eyepiece. I'm like, yeah. He says, how old are you? Oh, no. And I thought, uh-oh. I was like, uh, old enough? But there was a, uh, a scene we were shooting later that day. I think it was the well, first. How'd you, what'd you answer? I just said, literally, I said, I'm old enough, and then kind of hid behind the camera and waited until someone said cut, and we did another take. And I just didn't, <laughs> I, I didn't know where he was going with that. So I kind of avoided that one. But... Uh, Later that day, we did a scene in the uh, office where all the prison guards get together. And I think it was first day of photography. And we'd done the wide shot, which is everybody files into the room. Tom sits at his desk. David Morse sits in a chair. And the other prison guards sit around the walls. And they have their conversation. We do the wide master. And then it's time to do the coverage. And we start with David Morse. Uh, Nice guy. Tom Hanks is off camera left, sitting at his desk. David Morris comes in. I'm supposed to sit him down. I'm on a gearhead and panning him in on a 75 spherical movie. And David Morris comes in and drops right out of my frame like a rock. <laughs> Gone. Hello, where is he? Tilt down. Oh, there he is. That was embarrassing. Okay. I was just, you know, caught off guard. Director says, oh, are you going to get him in the uh, frame next time? It's like, okay. Yeah. All right. Next. Oh. Yeah. <sighs> next take. He comes in, does something completely different. Not on purpose. Dave Morse is a great guy. Yeah. Ended yeah. up loving him. But... At this point, he was killing me. You're getting used to him. So I screwed up take two. And I can't remember if I screwed up two or three, but at some point, I hear Tom to my left say, hmm, it would appear our young camera operator has not finished his correspondence course yet. (laughs) And my heart rate just starts going bam, 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 bam. My focus puller was Heather Page, who I'd done a bunch of movies with, and she's (sighs) kind of poking me going, you okay? I was like, yeah, we'll see what happens. So I went and I talked to David Morris, and I said, I'm having trouble with this one. You're coming in and doing something different every time, and I just need a hint what you're going to do so that I can, because we're tight on you, and I'm trying to follow you all the way down. And he said, oh, yeah, sorry. He's very helpful. No problem. Great. I'll do this. But it went right out of his head. We get into the scene. He comes in, and I fuck it up again. Sorry. Probably oh. shouldn't talk that way. Oh. But I screw it up again, and I'm like, oh, my God. I'm starting to sweat and look, trying not to look over to my left at Tom. What has, has the director said anything else? Or they? Or oh, they, I'm pretty sure that there were comments about, "Are you going to get this?" So eventually, I do get it. They're you on know. their phone with other operators. Yeah, probably. And well, <laughs> the very first time I ever saw Tom Hanks was on a movie in New York called Punchline with my mentor Ted Churchill, and I saw the A camera operator get fired because he couldn't do a stand up from a guy sitting at the uh, counter of a deli properly. Oh, or a diner. Yeah, and so I, this is going through my head. I'm like, this is like that whole thing I saw day one. ten years ago coming all over again, <gasps> and. So I finally get the shots with David. I don't remember if I went and talked to him again or whatever it was, but I got in a rhythm with him when we got several takes that were fine. It comes time to turn around and do Tom's, uh, Tom's close-up. Oh, boy. And so <laughs> I pan him in, and damned if he doesn't swing to the left, swing to the right, stand up, and drop like a rock. <laughs> and I was wound up. I was ready for something. I was like, whoosh, 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 with the wheels, and bam, sit him down. <laughs> Okay. So you nailed it. Yeah, I nailed it. <laughs> and the director, Tom, Frank Darabont, is like, good with that, Dave? And I didn't even look at Tom. I'm like, yep, good. I'm looking down, looking anywhere but at Tom. And then next take, 
He comes in, doesn't swing left, doesn't swing right, just drops like a rock. Bam. Okay. And none of these takes are usable. They're never going to use any action the way he's doing it. He's being completely ridiculous. And love Tom, love him. This is not to say anything bad about Tom. I'll explain what's going. Clearly fucking with you. It's not that he's just fucking with me. He's actually testing me. And so he does Ah. this two or three more times. And after I sit him down properly each time, he looks at me and he says, "Okay, it would seem our young operator has finished his correspondence course, and we can get on with making the movie." And it was a really good lesson for me. What he was doing was making sure he wasn't going to be wasting his time and the performance that he was going to be putting out, thinking, is the operator going to get this or am I wasting my time and we're going to have to do it again? It was a real test. Yeah, it was a real test. I would have been gone in a heartbeat if I hadn't pulled that off. I am Mm. convinced. Now, Tom was great. And after that, he'd do anything that was necessary for camera. Right. In fact, he calls it, um, what do you call it, movie... Movie logic is his term for it. If it looks good on camera, he'll do it. And he'd get himself into the most twisted configurations. Wait, hang on. So yeah, go ahead. in his, his movie logic, does that so does that mean he'll never say to you something like, My character wouldn't do that or things oh, like no, that? I, I mean, he did one whole scene. The uh, the art department had built a horizontal bar on the on the prison bars. There was a horizontal. Don't hit that. Yeah, oops. That was the microphone thing. Smashed into that. Uh, there was a horizontal bar exactly at Tom's eye level, which really should have been moved or figured out ahead of time. Should never have happened. Every time you shot through the bars at him, there was a horizontal bar right at his eye level. Oh, in the jail cell. In the jail cell, yeah. In the Green Mile. On the Green Mile. So you'd have to either get a little lower or get a little higher to avoid this bar. Well, that's fine. That'll work. Mm-hmm. Unless there's a bunch of guys standing behind him that you also want to see, like yeah. the other prison guards. Because right. you go too low, and suddenly they're too low in the frame. Go too high, and you're cutting their heads off. So we were having trouble figuring out how to frame a close-up of him. And he said, well, you only see me from, like, chest up, right? Yeah. Bring a half apple. So actually, he said, well, what if I do this? And he just squatted, like, three inches, spread his legs a little bit like Groucho. And just that became that. his and bars? I, and I said, uh, yeah, but... This is a really intense scene. Like he's getting himself all worked up, crying and shaking the bars and all this stuff. And he said, does it look good to camera? I said, yeah, it looks great. He said, then I'll do it. And that's his idea of movie logic. And there are actors who get that. Mm-hmm. And there are actors who would never in a million years do that. No. And Tom completely gets it and does what's necessary to make the shot work. The, the close-ups where he's got, um, where he's pulled up against the bars and Michael Clark Duncan uh, playing John Coffey has his hands wrapped around his, uh, you know, he's grabbed him by the collar and pulled him up against the bars and he's breathing into his mouth and doing or sucking the bad stuff out of Tom's mouth and right. all those scenes. Yeah. The close ups, Tom's right up against the, the bars. John, uh, Michael Clark Duncan is huge. He's the size of a house. Yeah. So we can't get the camera past him to get a close up. We're trying to figure out how do we get in there? And Tom says, do you even see Michael? I said, nope. Do you see his hand on my collar? No, we're really tight, like chinned eyebrows. He goes, I'll do it myself. And so he grabbed himself by the collar and flung himself against the bars. And if you were watching this from the outside, it looks completely absurd. It looks like a Saturday Night Live sketch. But he's got tears streaming down his face. He's acting his heart out. But your fl- eyebrows to chin on him or something. And it looks perfect to camera. So that was a... That was one of those moments where, I mean, he became my hero when he did that. Yeah. He just, he just gets it. That's so cool. Yeah. That's great. And then Michael Clark Duncan just stood off camera and did lines yep. for him. That's so cool. Yeah. Uh, how was he? Fantastic. I had just worked with like him it. on Armageddon before that. 
Oh, okay. And Heather Page was my focus puller on that one as well. So when Michael Clark Duncan saw us on the set of Green Mile, he was like, ah, people I know. And it was he was comfortable with us, which was great for him because it was the performance of his career, and he really was pouring everything out. And yeah. so we had a great time with him. Miss him so much. I know. It's so sad. Yeah, absolutely. It's so sad. But, but that that's so great to hear about Tom Hanks. Oh, he's, and, he's one of the best there is. How did you um, how did you like working with Frank Darabont? You did a couple of movies with him. I did, did that, know? and uh, the one after that that he did called The Majestic. Right. Uh, I I like Frank. Um, really talented guy. I mean, look at uh, Shawshank Redemption. I mean, mm-hmm. he's. I had a great time on Green Mile. I'm thrilled I got to work on it. It's, I look at it and I go, hmm. I got to do that as my first movie as the A operator. It's been downhill ever since. Yeah. But right. No, I mean, geez. Yeah. Um, pretty high bar. I did. Frank did a pilot a few years ago, and I did see camera on it just a few days. But I found him to be really honest and cool, and you know, um, nice guy. Yeah, he was great. He was one of those who had his ideas. He had what he wanted to do, but he was open to collaboration. Yeah. And David Tattersall was the director of photography. He was really Same on the pilot. really kind. Oh, was he? Oh, yeah. great. Uh, and he's just a wonderful guy. So we had a, a great time on that. Yeah. Oh, cool. Um, Gosh, how long ago was Green Mile? I just nineteen ninety eight. That long ago? Yep. Shit, twenty years. Yeah. Uh, wow. When you put it that way, jeez. <sighs> well, y- y- oh, you also mentioned Con Air. <laughs> um, which that one's that's, didn't win any Oscars, I don't think. But no, might but have it's had got a cult file. It's got a cult following almost. I'm amazed at how many people when they hear about Con Air. Oh, I love that movie. It was it was good. <laughs> it was good. And what well, when it was Nick Cage, I liked the parts. I liked the parts on the plane because all the criminals were just hilarious. They were uh, a riot. I'll uh, say that. What Kevin was it? Kevin Spacey that was? No, right? it was uh, John Malkovich. Of course, geez, how could I yeah. make that mistake? John Malkovich in the in the box as, or whatever. As uh, what's his name? Cyrus the Virus. Oh yes. Yeah. And. Oh God! They leave that one. The I'll say like, this: there are still lines to this day that, like Heather, was my focus puller on that one as well. We had a long run where we did stuff. Uh, we did a bunch of movies together, and we still quote that movie back and forth to each other. What's your, what, what's your favorite? Oh, uh, let's see. My daddy's coming home on July fourteenth when uh, Cyrus the virus is threatening the bunny with a gun. There's that, and then there's um, <laughs> stuff from uh, what's it, Steve Buscemi playing the psycho having the little picnic with a girl. That's what I was yeah. thinking of. Steve Buscemi. <laughs> yep. No, that was that was crazy, and it was a crazy experience making oh, that movie. I mean, um, Malkovich and Buscemi, all those guys on that set. It, oh my god, it must have been it must have been a riot. It was. They all seem cool nuts. too. They're. I mean, I'm assuming they're all nice guys. You know, you never know, but. Um, I know Basemi is. Basemi's great. Yeah, I worked with him on several things, and he was always wonderful. Yeah. Um, speaking of Basemi and Hanks and all these giant people you've worked with, how do you deal with not just actors but directors and even producers, whoever, just like deal with these giant egos? And it's interesting. I was always kind of uh, a shy kid growing up. And what really pulled me out of my shell was realizing that part of my job was telling Angelina Jolie, you're off your mark, you got to be over here, telling Tom Hanks that didn't work, I needed to do this for camera. You can't just sit there and be quiet because someone needs to solve the problem and you don't want the director and DP to have to come over and solve the problem every time. So you need to learn to interact with these people who would generally be intimidating. Mm -hmm. So 
that kind of pulled me out of a shell that I was in. And I realized they're people who are there to get a job done and they want to do the best they can. They don't want to think about too much other stuff beyond what they need to do to get the shot. So I try to make it very clear, again, uh, communication, get the idea to them quickly, clearly, have a solution, don't just present them with a problem without a solution. That's actually key with directors especially. That's great advice. It's It took me a long time to learn it because I can see shots in my head. Having done this enough, I can uh, see the shot in my head when they suggest this lens on this camera doing this move. Sometimes I know it's not going to work. And my brain just goes, eh, okay, that's not going to happen. And I used to just say that. It's, oh, well, that won't work because whatever. And I learned that that doesn't fly in most cases. Don't right because they've spent a long time coming up with this yeah, idea. <laughs> exactly. So there are some directors we just need to show them. You just have to put the lens on and show them the shot and let them discover that it doesn't work. Right. But the key is being able to come up with a solution, whether right. it's a lens change or changing the choreography or blocking of something. So what do you what do you do when you know the shot won't work and you can't think of a solution? <laughs> I will literally just do the shot the way they are telling me to do it. And then they can figure out it doesn't work and come up with and their with own the solution. With the DP and we can all figure it out together. Then you can collaborate. Exactly. But yeah. I, I did learn that usually throwing out a negative is just a really bad idea. You need to have some kind of solution. Like, okay, that's a great idea. Let's do that. But I think I'm going to need to do this here because that's going to happen. And life got a lot easier once I figured that out. I think that's really, really good advice for everybody. Absolutely. (laughs) Everybody. Yeah, because these people, some directors have been working on this project. If they wrote it, they might be three, four, five years into this thing in their head. Last thing they want is some, some person coming along and going, well, you can't do that because of this. Well, they want it to be the best, but they don't want people just like... I mean, everybody's different, but most people will not like you. They describe this big shot, which is a big shot for them that they've been thinking about for five years. And then you're like, that won't work. Yeah, that's not going to fly. Right. Yeah. And they have the pressure of they're directing a movie. They're not sleeping much. They have meetings every night. They're they're rewriting, whatever. And now it's like, okay, here's a shot. (sighs) And then you're like, nope. (laughs) So yeah. I see it from their perspective a little too. Oh, absolutely. But, no, yeah. it, having a solution yeah. is really important. Yeah, and, and eventually experience is what gives you the ability to come to that conclusion quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you also, um, one one filmmaker we didn't talk about was Michael Bay. <laughs> You've done a bunch of stuff with Michael Bay. Yes. Including Transformers. I don't know. Will you? What else have you done? I did. I was B-camera Steadicam on Armageddon. Right, Armageddon. Right, and right, right, right. speaking of, Michael know, we, Clark we, we talked earlier about, yeah, Mark, Michael Clark Duncan was on that. Talked earlier about the kind of things you get to see and do on movies that you don't get to do in normal yeah. everyday life. I mean, I got to be on the space shuttle on that, on the launch pad, uh, doing shots across the gantry that, where the astronauts get on the space shuttle and standing next to the solid rocket boosters right there on the pad. And I was in a B-2 bomber. We were, you know, I mean the access we had at NASA and at Edwards Air Force Base. We got to see and do the coolest stuff on that movie. And then, I had no idea. Oh, yeah. Oh. And, the, and the set at Disney was insane for the asteroid, this huge 
behemoth of a set that was crazy to work on. I mean, it was an amazing experience. And that was my first Michael Bay movie. And I got shot on the Disney lot. Yep, that was where the asteroid set was built. Oh, such a small lot. (laughs) It was a big stage. They dug they dug the soundstage deeper, thirty thirty feet deeper. To uh, (laughs) what a great idea! Yeah, just dig out the floor. Set of building stairs. Just oh, that's awesome. It was huge. Wow, that's crazy. Um, Wait, so this so you got to sit on the space shuttle? I wasn't. I didn't get to climb through the hatch into the space shuttle. It was the Challenger. Was the one that was on the uh, launch pad when we were shooting. And I'll wait, remember. Wait, 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 wait. The Challenger. I uh, sorry, no. uh, Columbia. Thank you. Okay. Columbia. Yes, my fault. Yes, <laughs> Challenger had long gone. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I said that because I knew it was one of the ones that had been lost because Columbia was lost eventually. But it was right. before it that. broke up on reentry. Yeah. Right. That yeah, one. Yeah, exactly. So, it's also sad. Absolutely. I I'm from Florida, as I've mentioned many times on the podcast. But in fifth grade, I watched that Challenger go up. Oh, okay. In the, uh, you know, from Orlando, you can see it. Not a good oh, day. Wow. Not a good day for no. Floridians. That was my but. freshman year at NYU. I remember where I was standing. Yeah, I it's, I remember exactly where I was. Crazy. Yeah. Um, uh, <clears throat> now we got to do. It's funny. I was standing on the launch pad next to the rocket booster, and I had a bunch of NASA scientists standing around watching me balance the Steadicam, and they were uh, saying, "Wow, that's the coolest thing we've ever seen." Uh, <laughs> and I just cracked up and I pointed at the space shuttle, and they're like, "Eh, we see that every day. It's old technology." I'm like, uh, okay, <laughs> it's all perspective. That's so funny. Yeah. So to them, like a shuttle is just like rockets work. and parts and yep. work. And then this the movie is stuff. New. That's cool. That's new. Yeah, it's right, literally right, right. just your perspective. But they'd be fun to talk to because unlike most people, they wouldn't ask you like, "Is that thing heavy?" And like, you know, they wouldn't ask the the dumb questions. <laughs> and I, I don't blame people for asking because it's a knee-jerk Sometimes reaction. they are dumb, though. I once had a director to look at the steady cam as I was wearing it and say, that would be the coolest thing to use underwater. Get out of here. I'm not kidding. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Okay, yeah, that's dumb. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but asking if it's heavy is kind of a... Can I start a conversation with the guy look wearing? Heavy. Yeah, exactly. It, it looks cool like thing. it's moving as this really lightweight thing. And it, Larry McConkey, I think, not is the one. Not when I do it. <laughs> Larry McConkey is <laughs> the one who said, uh, you know, you're trying not to make it look like you're sweating bullets and dying inside. Right. <laughs> well, and Garrett always said, like, you know, kind of the never let them see you sweat. Exactly. Uh, kind of attitude, which I was, <laughs> I was on a show on last Friday first time ever on the show and it was all day steady cam all this exterior park stuff and i'm i'm um first shot up and my dolly grip leads me back onto this platform that we'd built and um i am just like sweat dripping because in the morning i just sweat like and he's looking at me and he's never met me before and he he looked at me going to die he went this is like take two and he's like I can see it going in his head. This guy's not going to make it all day. This, this, the, he can't do it. And I looked, at, they said cut, and I looked at him and I went, I sweat like crazy in the morning. I, I swear in 20 minutes I won't be sweating. And he's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of funny. But anyway, um, sorry, stupid aside. No, that's okay. <clears throat> uh, you were talking about Michael Bay. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Michael so, Bay. Yeah, it ended up being a big part of my career working on his movies because I then did Bad Boys 2 as the A camera operator and The Island and the first Transformers. Oh right! So I had forgotten that Michael Bay did Bad Boys Two and yeah. The Island. I totally slipped my mind. Um, as a matter of fact, I remember a photo of you from many years ago running 
I think handheld, but you oh, have like that's a, from Transformers. It is. I think uh, if it's the one of me holding the two thirty five, uh, like it full. It looks like yeah, full, full tilt, run. and there's a battery cable that yeah. looks like a piano wire. <laughs> exactly. Uh, <laughs> Todd Schlopey's running behind me, pulling focus, and Moose uh, Alan Schultz, fantastic dolly grip, is carrying the battery belt, running behind him. And all three of us were screaming along. Robert Zuckerman took the picture, and it's, it's a great shot. I remember him coming up to me and saying, Yeah, it's that yellow Panavision power cable, right? Yeah. Then it's the one. That's right? the one, yeah. yeah. And Robert was like, I've got the Terminator shot of you. And I really? remember looking at the print he gave me and went, Wow, I want to be that dude. <laughs> he gave you a print? Yeah. He oh, that's me. very nice of yeah. him. Oh. <laughs> um, so, oh, Bad Boys 2. Do you know Mike Watson? Yes. An assistant? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, it was funny. He another quick aside. I like to talk. If you, can. I'm, <laughs> well, I'm almost done with beer. Doing your so. uh, a podcast, you talk. <laughs> um, actually, do you need? Do you want another? No, beer? I'm good. Okay. Um, so, Mike, uh, I shouldn't. Anyway, he worked on the movie. I shouldn't even say no, he moved enough. out here and then went back to Florida like two weeks later. <laughs> oh, he didn't. He couldn't get an interview in Florida for the for Bad Boys Two in Miami. Where so he, he came lived. out here and then so he got moved on it, here, went back. got an interview, moved back and lived in his house. But they paid him for it. <laughs> Smart man. Well, it worked out beautifully for him, but because um, he hadn't sold his house. Yet. Yeah. Okay. But um, anyway, um, Bad Boys Two that that was um, that was fun. Uh, Martin Lawrence and. Will Smith? Smith, yeah. Um, it was. We did insane stuff on that. You know, close to death every day, cars smashing, flying all over the place. It was madness. Yeah. Super fun. Bayhem. As, uh, Bayhem? Yeah. Bayos, Bayhem. Names for it. It's uh, it's an experience. I'll say this. I learned a lot about, uh, you know, he's got a reputation in the industry. People are like, oh, I worked with Michael Bay, screaming lunatic, blah, 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 blah. But mm-hmm. he's actually... Uh, he's smart. He knows the audience he's making his movies for. He makes them uh, quickly. You look at a trailer, and if you see a, a Michael Bay trailer, you go, that's a Michael Bay movie. Mm-hmm. So he knows exactly what he's doing. And I learned a lot about shooting cool-looking stuff quickly from him because, you know, you're doing 65 setups a day. So Even with all the action? Yep. So those stunt guys got to be on it. Yes. Ever have a Ever have a big stunt accident on a Michael Bay movie or other? Uh, I won't talk about any of the ones where someone got hurt. I wasn't on... Uh, someone got hurt on one of his movies. I wasn't on that one. I've had a lot of close calls, but got away with it each time. But I've... Were the close had, calls because you shouldn't have been somewhere? Did you do something wrong? Um, Did somebody tell you to go to the wrong place? No, there were usually... Accidental where, yeah, mishaps. Accidental mishaps. There was one where uh, on Armageddon I had a safety pop loose that shouldn't have, and I almost fell 60 feet from a bosun's chair rig up at the top of the stage all the way to the bottom. The only thing that kept me in was clamping my legs around the Steadicam arm, which was hard-mounted to the seat I was sitting in. And... Uh, you know, stuff like that shouldn't have happened. I've been wait. You're 60 feet up in a chair. On a this cr- was back. This is a shot that nowadays you'd do with a remote head, but back then they had this bosun's chair set up where they could swing me from the top corner of the stage all the way down across the asteroid up to a close up of Bruce Willis. So it was swinging across the stage and dropping at the same time. Stunts had rigged up this whole bosun's chair to swing. I had the VistaVision camera in low mode with gyros on it because they're blowing 100 mile an hour fans blowing air and crap oh all over the place God. and uh my safety popped loose and i almost fell out of the damn chair 
So how'd you wrap your legs around the arm? I had the arm mounted on a vehicle mount to the chair I was sitting in, and the Mitchell plate was between my legs. Oh. And so I clamped my legs around that. When yeah, yeah, the yeah. safety, because I was leaning forward in low mode, yeah, of course, you know, sure. Yeah, so, so you're 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 leaning you're against using the safety. Your safety. I had said to the stunt coordinator, I said, "I'm going to lean all my weight against the safety. It has to be secure. Make right. sure it doesn't pop." Put three of them on if you need to. And it was a webbing strap that he used to jump out of helicopters on descending uh, descender rigs. So he trusted it 100. Mm-hmm. percent He and went white when uh, when I told him what happened. He couldn't believe it. And we figured out why it's too hard to explain on our, yeah, in yeah. audio how it happened, but uh, it didn't happen again. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> sure. I mean, well, weird things, you know, they they always say like, oh, that bolt is rated for whatever, or that thing is rated for whatever. That doesn't mean it's never going to break. No, that's true. This was physics coming along and going, ah, we found a way to bypass this. And bing, the safety <laughs> right. just came right apart. Okay. F- f- I mean, yeah. I'm just saying like, it, it, I'm not saying something broke. I'm just saying like. If they're if you're a little worried about it and they tell you, Oh, don't worry, it's rated at fifty five thousand pounds, that thing only weighs thirty five thousand you should still you have a right to be concerned if you don't yeah. feel comfortable. I've gotten much better over the years at being I'm not careful telling about you myself. This. I'm telling no, everybody enough, this. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. You, but you know, we all yeah. do stuff early on. Like I did stuff early on that I look at now and go Wow, that was stupid. I should yeah. never have done that. What what in particular? Anything uh, with Steadicam or Yeah, I I there's a place called Dead Horse Point in uh is it Utah? Uh, can't remember. It's a, a canyon with a thousand foot drop, and there's a pinnacle rock. It might even be called Pinnacle Rock <laughs> that is, I don't know, 12, 20 feet from the edge of the cliff. And I walked with my steady cam across a two by 12 from the cliff to the pinnacle rock, the thousand foot drop below. I had a safety cable on, but had I fallen, it would have been, you know, pendulum, whoosh, bam. Right oh, you would have hit the, the wall. Yeah, sure. exactly. You wouldn't have fallen, but no, you would I, have I been wouldn't do that severely now. injured. Yeah. Yeah, stuff a like two that. two by 12. Yeah. <laughs> that was one of the first features I worked on. I was like, yeah, I'll do anything. Yeah. You know, so, Ooh, But people seems... ask me, oh, is your job dangerous? And I say, well, I've been caught in exploding fireballs five times, you know, that kind of stuff. It's, it's Have you? Maybe only four, but yes. Uh, you know, sometimes things... L- luckily, in each case, I was wearing protective fire clothing, and mm. in some cases, even the gel and all that stuff. Oh, so, really? Uh, I was protected, and I never got badly burnt. Got my hair burnt off once. Uh, to the scalp? Not to the scalp. I kind of looked like Arnold from everywhere. Terminator, where it's oh, just wow. kind of sitting there crispy and smoking. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's wow. kind of a bizarre job sometimes. Yeah. So, I... I have kind of moved away from those movies yeah. lately. I, t- I I don't know why I was reminded of this. I can't I can't even believe I got a shotgun blast uh a blank to the to the face and they said it was far enough away and blah blah blah. No, without a protective shield? Yeah. Oh, that's not good. This is a non-union movie many years ago. Um yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't. There, it's like it's like burning dust. Yeah, exactly. They, they throw a handful of dust in your face, and it's all on fire. Yeah, not good. No, I looked weird the next day. <laughs> looked like I'd I'd gained a bunch of zits or freckles, but uh, luckily that went away quickly. But um, yeah, those things, man, they can. You're never overdoing safety, even if it just makes you feel safe. If you feel better about it, then you get the shot done, and you're done. I mean, obviously, there's always overdoing. There can be overdoing things, but 
for the most part, if yeah. it makes you feel better, it's worth doing. I've been think? lucky in that uh, I've had a lot of near misses, a lot of things that were kind of crazy, but I've never been badly injured. Knock on wood. It's been uh, it's been exciting though. Right. Well, that's I, I, who was it told me a producer somebody told me about a helicopter pilot. They're like the Nam guys are the best. Um, the best film helicopter pilots because they've they've almost died a million times and they've learned and they know exactly how far they can push everything because they've pushed it all a million times it's the same old same old with everything until you haven't until you haven't hit the on button on the camera and lost a take of something or or flashed a mag you you will eventually yep. and then you'll learn your mistake yeah, absolutely. so it, to, to be in the helicopter it's good that the guys made all of them first yes you don't want to be in the helicopter when the guy makes I'm a sure mistake. you've done a lot of helicopter work too. early on in my career I did and then luckily I've sort of phased that out yeah and I prefer not to get in them if I can avoid it sure it was a lot of fun yeah absolutely um it's exciting. I mean, when they start doing really big stuff on a movie, you get wrapped up in it. And it's it's pretty when you're doing big explosions or fire effects or car crashes or launching things through the air that are exploding and on fire. It's just yeah, that's cool. It's fun to do stuff like that. Yeah, it's fun. <laughs> it, especially the way things tend to go. I don't know about Michael Bay, but like anytime I've done these big things, I mean, they don't they don't get set up in 5 minutes, you know. So there's a lot of expectation you know so you're uh, right everything ramps up and then you know and then the stunt gets done and well in a michael bay movie you do like 10 of those before lunch <laughs> yeah i can't even i can't even imagine no, it's, but, it's insane but the worry is always like well how high is the car gonna go how far and your instincts kick in so quickly mm-hmm. like really quickly because Right as we roll him, I was like, uh, did it, did he tell me like the fire, how far the fireball is going to shoot out or, you know what I mean? I'm always thinking about that one last. Well, luckily some of the people who are really, really good at helping out with that, if you've got a really good key grip and a really good special effects coordinator, guys who have are really on the ball, they won't let you get hurt. Yeah. First AD helps a lot there too. But, and when you've got a really good team of people like that, it's so much safer to do crazy stuff yeah and i've learned the hard way that that uh not the hardest way but i've learned that you need to stand up for yourself when no one else will definitely (laughs) i think it's great when you have somebody there that you really trust you have a great stunt coordinator that's like no it's gonna go exactly right here and then you back up the extra thousand feet or whatever it is you need to. <laughs> I'm exaggerating, but right. you back up an extra distance to allow for mistakes, and then the stunt lands right where it's supposed to. So then, when you do stunt two and three, with you them, get to trust the people. Yeah. Once you know that what they say is going to happen is actually going to happen, then right. you can really, you know, that's when you can relax a little too. Um, it's a nice, it's a nice feeling. But I haven't done the kinds of stunt movies you have. I've, you know. I've done movies with stunts in them, not movies that are stunts. <laughs> stunt after stunt after stunt after stunt. Have you continued doing Transformers, or did you just do the no, first one? No, I just did the first one. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, you also did so many big movies. Spider-Man, the, the, the original Tony That McGuire. was also additional photography. Oh, it I was? Didn't, didn't do the whole movie. I don't know who operated the whole movie, um, but I did... That was several weeks of okay. fights and stuff. That was actually one of the ones where I caught in a got caught in a big gigantic fireball um 
there's a fight in a burning apartment. There's we did a bunch of stuff, additional photography with uh, Pete Menzies was the director of photography. Todd Schlobe was pulling focus, and we did a bunch of stuff over at uh, I think it was Sony, and uh, it was fun. But yeah, I wasn't the operator for the main gotcha. unit on that one. Gotcha. Okay, never mind that. Yep. On to the next one. <laughs> well, there there are really. Oh, I couldn't help but bring up um, probably the most important film of your career. Uh-oh. On Deadly Ground. Oh, my God. <laughs> it may actually be the one. If, you know, you can rank your IMDb list by uh, score. I oh, yeah. think that's the bottom on mine. <laughs> I think it's generally listed as the worst movie I worked on. Directed by none other than Steven Seagal. Yes, indeed. <laughs> it was the first big Hollywood action movie I worked on. Was that a big movie? I mean, what at kind the time of it was huge for me. I don't twenty I, million. Know, probably, million? I can't remember. It right. was nineteen ninety three. A I twenty think. million dollar movie was a good size movie. Yeah, at that I don't time. remember what it cost, but you know, I got to go to Alaska, another place where I got caught in a big fireball. Um, <laughs> I'm not kidding. And, I believe you. <laughs> but uh, Theo Vandesand hired me on that. He was the DP who started it, and he took a big chance on you know the young kid. I think I was. 25 years old had just gotten the union you know i'd done one yet one union movie before that maybe two and he made you a camera uh b camera oh, b okay yeah martin share did a camera did you st- do steady cam as yes. well yeah okay yeah that was back when it, there was sort of a progression uh initially you had the steady cam operator who came in as gun for hire you're mm-hmm. going to do a steady cam shot hire a steady cam operator for that shot and it was great fun because you'd go in you'd do a shot and they'd say all right, great, thanks, you're wrapped. That was a great three this hours. This is really cool. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. That was a lot of fun. But then there were several of us who wanted to do more than that. And, you know, Steve St. John uh, was one of the, the key figures. Uh, I think Marco Kane. You know, they, we were good at operating cameras, so it didn't have to be just the Steadicam. Right. So then movies wanted a B camera operator who had a Steadicam, so they had one available all the time. And a bunch of us were doing that. And then as we got more and more experience, we wanted to do the A camera. So right. then most movies would have an A camera steady cam operator. And it's sort of been that whole progression. And uh, On Deadly Ground was sort of the, the beginning of that for me as the B camera steady cam guy. Well, but not you, overly memorable as a movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you got, you got what you needed out of it. Absolutely. I learned a lot on that. Yeah, you learned. You got work. Um I think maybe you learned who not to work with. <laughs> I don't know. I've never worked with him. I've heard stories. They're probably I, I, true. Okay, gotcha. I won't ask you to tell any. <laughs> Doesn't matter. He he lives in Russia now. It, yeah, exactly. Know. Our Russian ambassador or something <laughs> crazy. I don't know. <laughs> um, okay, so that's my joke for the thing. Um, there are actually two movies that I really did want to talk to you about. Okay. And um, that aren't like giant movies. One is Menace to Society, and the other is Cool Runnings. Oh, okay. Both... In certain, well, Cool Runnings is kind of a classic. I don't know if you could say that about Menace to Society, but it was a big movie for me when I was in college. Okay. Um, Oddly enough, I started my career in New York doing rap videos. Okay. And I just hooked up with a DP and a director who were doing rap videos. So we did like Run DMC, Public Enemy. Oh, so um, you started in New York? Yeah. 
Oh, of course. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. And, uh, you know, Tribe Called Quest and rap, 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 rap. So when I came out to, and I'd done stuff with the Hughes brothers who directed Menace to Society. Yeah, yeah. So I came out to LA and started doing rap videos <laughs> and the Hughes brothers were making Menace Society. Same, and, same jobs, different climate. Exactly. Right? <laughs> and also I had to learn not to wear red or blue bandanas. Oh, shit. Uh, and not in those neighborhoods. Yeah, exactly. So, Menace to Society, honestly, I don't remember much about working on it, except that I've got a couple pictures of myself doing it, wearing very short shorts, because it was like 1990 or 91 or something like that, looking at these pictures going, wow, do I not look like I belong on that set? Uh, but then my first feature film was Hanging with the Homeboys. So it was all part of, you know, having started in rap movies. I mean, rap videos. I started doing rap you know, movies in that uh, that particular genre. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Cool Runnings was the first union movie I did. I got in the union the day before I flew to Canada to start that one. And Faden Papa Michael was the DP. And I had worked yeah. with him on a, uh, a TV pilot. And I think their Steadicam operator up in Canada left or something. So I went up to Ontario to start there, and then they took me to um, Jamaica to do all that stuff, and I had a great time. I bet you did. Yeah. yeah. Uh, two countries, one movie. Yeah, and also some weird deal. I was working like four days a week in Jamaica, and they said, do you mind taking a three-day weekend when we're working in Jamaica because we can't really afford you? We didn't plan on bringing a Steadicam operator. Like, yeah, great. No problem. I'll do that. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't that be a dream if they switched everybody to four day weeks? Oh, it was it was fantastic. I'd just go scuba diving for like three days straight. Oh, you big scuba diver. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um The most important movie on that list that you probably don't even have on your list because it doesn't uh warrant any attention is a little movie called Man of the House. Oh, it's not on my list. As well it really shouldn't be. Um it's the movie I met my wife on. Really? And therefore, it's the most important movie I ever please, did. Please, please tell me all about <laughs> it. It's a Tommy Lee Jones movie where he protects five cheerleaders in the Witness Protection Program. He's like a Texas Ranger. What year was this? 2003, 2004. Okay. And uh, my wife, Liz Vassie, is an actress, and she was playing Tommy Lee Jones' partner. And I met her on that, and we were married six months later. So most important movie I ever did. <laughs> six months later? Yeah. Wow. We call it being members of the When You Know You Know Club. I guess so. Yeah. Are you, are you, um, were you a camera? Yeah. Wow. So you guys just hit it off. Yep. Day one? Absolutely. Uh, no, it took a couple of days. In fact, our first sort of date was the dinner saying goodbye to her character. The uh, director threw a dinner for her and another character because they were going back to LA. We shot the movie in Austin. After she wrapped. So yeah, after she wrapped. So we had that dinner together. And you got invited to that dinner. By her. Really? Yes. That's and uh, we sat together, closed the restaurant down. We were the last two people left. And then she flew home. And I still had two months in Austin. Oh. But uh, And then you had a long distance for a while. Exactly. That's funny. Seems to have worked out. Good for you, man. Yeah. Good so it's you. funny how stuff works out because it's the most insignificant looking movie of the last. Well, actually, you know, everyone's got bad movies. I got a, plenty of them on here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's yeah. the bad movie that means the most to me. I, I've, I've heard some Tommy Lee Jones stories. Um do you have any to share? I've heard he's I've heard he's a nice guy. That's not one of the stories I have. Let me put it that way. Um, on the last day, they'd built a set that was a house that uh, we were in Austin, and the sound stages were not tall enough. They weren't real sound stages; they were just converted warehouses, empty warehouses. Yeah. Right? So <clears throat> they had a two-story house that they couldn't build in the interiors for because it wasn't tall enough for. T- so they built the first floor on 
one set and the second floor on the other. So they had stair, you know, we had a, uh, stairs a staircase. To nowhere. Nowhere. Yeah, stairs to nowhere. Right. And then on the, uh, the upstairs level, we had stairs down to nowhere. They literally went down into a dead end. Right. And at the end of it, we were shooting the upstairs set and everyone was taking bets on what Tommy Lee Jones was doing when they call rap. And as soon as they called rap, he said, I think goodbye to some of the girls playing the cheerleaders and went right down those steps like he was going to get out the front door <laughs> fast as he could into a dead end. And the whole so, crew was just standing so around. So he clearly so hadn't he, been, never even exactly, looked down the steps. He hadn't looked down oh there. My God. And so we all stood there and they had to come up and do the walk of shame past the whole crew as he had to find his way off the set. And everyone's just standing, staring at him quietly. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Um, I'm out of movies. You're out of movies. Anything else? Uh, let's see. What else we got that would be interesting? Uh, going back, you brought up. I mean, cool we've been runnings. going for we've yeah, been going been for quite a while. Well, now. you brought up I on mean, Deadly Ground. I didn't think that one would ever make it into the conversation. <laughs> that I was a surprise. Just... I saw. I just saw it, but it was like next to one of the other, uh, you know, good movies that you did. And then I was like, oh, I have to. I don't know. Oh, well, don't... Here's, there's a run like yeah, Ready to Rumble. Oh boy, there's a good one. Yeah, right. Um, oh, that was like a, a amateur wrestling movie, no? No, pro wrestling movie. Professional oh, pro. Wrestling. Sorry, yes, exactly. I didn't mean None to denigrate that thing. <laughs> there is a good story about that. Heather Page and I had just finished Green Mile. Then we went to go do that movie. So the night they were having the cast and crew screening for the Green Mile, we couldn't get out of work from Ready to Rumble, and so instead we ended up on somewhere up the grapevine at night, shooting in the cold filming a scene where uh what was it a septic truck you know one of these trucks that is pumping the crap out of um septic tanks uh septic tanks and porta potties and all that stuff our heroes are driving in this vehicle and they have an accident it tips over and sewage spills out all over the freeway so that's what we got to film the night we should have been watching the green mile and special effects turned the pump up too high and when it flipped over we were preceding it i think with the steady cam on a might have been Cotton Mather's um, old motorcycle rig. We were sprayed with raw, with fake sewage. You know, it was made out of methyl cellulose and brown gunk and sure. bits of stuff to look like all the most disgusting things you can imagine. Right. And we got covered in it. And so Heather and I are looking at each other covered in fake uh, shit. What are we doing here? And why are we here? And we're freezing and shivering because it was November or something. Well, now like you're that. soaking wet and you're yeah, up, and up on the top of a mountain, basically. Yeah. And oh, thinking, boy. this is a low point. How did we get here? <laughs> it's just not always. Uh, well, I don't know what I should say on your podcast and not, but Ted Churchill. You can say a, whatever you, you want. Know, a, yeah, it's not all sunglasses and blowjobs. Oh. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a good place to end it. <laughs> and my apologies to all the people out there who are offended by that, but that well, wasn't mine. I was gonna, I was gonna make the old, you know, uh, the the guy who scoops the elephant shit, you know, in the circus. <laughs> Why don't you quit that job? Oh, what? Leave show business? Yeah, exactly. Leave show uh, business. <laughs> But well, uh, it is, like I said earlier, it's the best job on set. It really is. On Even when it's miserable. It beats just any other job I can it imagine. It beats doing that thing over there and being miserable. Too. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, how many times have you been on a set where it's they've got the uh, office would, cubicles set up? Uh, and you've got all the extras sitting there typing at their stations and you're doing a walk and talk down. And you look around and think, that could be my job. I could be sitting there somewhere... At a, in an office doing the same thing every day we're somewhere different someone I think it was a prop master had one of the coolest um, little anecdotes about 
what was great about our job. And he, his, his daughter had asked him, his young daughter had said, Dad, why is your job so cool? Why do you like your job so much? And he said, you know what? I wake up every morning and I look at my call sheet and it's got a map attached to it. And it tells me where I have to go to be at work that day. It's like day a treasure hunt. Because it's something different every day and it doesn't get boring. And I always thought that was really cool. Yeah, that's a really great way to look at it. I mean, yeah, it really is. Because yeah. so many times I've had the attitude like, oh, I got to go up off the 14. Oh, yeah, well, granted, country. when the map says you have to drive an hour and a half to Mojave and you're going to be staying in the Super 8 motel, it's not as exciting. Or the, but, bu- the bu- to bring or it back, it, the bu- Bun Boy. Yeah, exactly, the Bun Boy Hotel. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't have a telephone in it. Oh, nice. It's no longer open. So if you were thinking about doing uh, touring Baker, California and going to that hotel, you better find a new one. It, um, I it was give shut that one down by the health department. Oh, that's bad. I don't know if it was. I'm just, <laughs> but it's, it closed. <laughs> anyway, um, thank you so much for coming. Absolutely, in. it's, it's been a real pleasure me. talking. Uh, I've enjoyed it. I'm, I'm glad you have. We'll, you, uh, and please cut out all the boring bad stuff. We'll see. <laughs> Thanks a lot. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks again to Dave. He was a great guest and a lot of fun to talk to. And he asked me to cut out all the boring stuff, but. There really wasn't any. I, uh, I enjoyed all of it. So it's pretty much all in there. Uh, and I hope you enjoyed it. And I hope you'll come back next week for another new episode.